what a beautiful evening it is out there. Venus shining brightly in the sky under a very haunting crescent moon. If, if you haven't been out to see that, you must go out and take a look. Oh my gosh. So we do have a very interesting night planned for you once again. Stephen Browdy is going to be joining us here in a little bit after our first bottom of the hour break. And he's got a very interesting case, a case of the gold leaf lady. Yes, a woman in Florida. Well, her body would erupt spontaneously in gold-colored foil. You know, and I am just as interested as you are to hear more about that. And uh, so we'll be doing that here in just a few minutes. For right now, I'd like to talk about a story that's largely being ignored by the mainstream media, you know, while they're having a nosebleed over emails and what this candidate said and what that candidate said. There's a very important story that's been unfolding for months and months now, and I do want your thoughts on this. Um, and it's, it's the Standing Rock Sioux. And their protests over the Dakota Pipeline. Uh, over 400 people have been arrested in the months since they've been protesting the pipeline, the pipeline's construction. It's a $3.8 billion project. And uh, as you know, they've been out there for many, many months. And now winter is closing in. And as I said before, when I talked about this, uh, look, uh, the, the Standing Rock Sioux and the other 200 tribes that have joined them are not going to stop. They are absolutely not going to stop, and they haven't. If, if everything by the police so far has not stopped them, they are not going to stop. And now it's reached, well, it's reached a critical point because the militarized police are showing up, SWAT teams showing up, they're using uh, tear gas. They're using, um, gosh, I mean, they're using uh, beanbag bullets, rubber bullets. They're using uh, just any and any and all non-lethal means, uh, including pepper spray against the protesters. Now, what happened today, you would probably be interested in. So there's a little creek nearby uh, called Cantapetta Creek. And the activists and the tribes wanted to cross the creek because on the other side, it is private land. But directly on the other side of the creek is um, a location where their ancestors are buried. It's, a, it's an old burial ground. And what they wanted to do is cross the creek and perform a peaceful water ceremony right there on the burial land of their ancestors. So they actually built uh, the what they're calling protesters. The protester, the protesters themselves are calling themselves water protectors, right? So they wanted to build a little bridge across the creek so that they could get across and perform this water ceremony. Well, then officers responded, ordering protesters to remove themselves from the bridge and notified them if they cross the bridge that they're going to be arrested. And they were. Police deployed, like I said, pepper spray and tear gas. And this is absolutely rich right here. Uh, said that they were violating numerous federal and state laws, including the Clean Water Act. Clean Water Act. I think that's what they are trying to maintain 
is the water being clean? I mean, their message has been clear for months and months and months now. And you know what? I might sound a little bit irritated about this whole thing, and that's because I am. Can't a compromise be reached to protect their land and also have the pipeline built? We need oil. We need gasoline to run our country. uh, But haven't they been through enough? Haven't we taken enough from them? Haven't we stomped on them and said that their opinions and their wants and their needs don't matter, that their wants and needs are far less important than the rest of us? You know, we have uh, taken just about everything we can take from them, and here we are, uh, ignoring their voice. And I say, can't we just listen and make a compromise with them? Because I encourage you to go do a Google search on uh, the Dakota Pipeline and look up the map. There is an alternate pipeline uh, route that is not going to be used. I don't know. And directly downriver is the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and 17 million other people that rely on the Missouri River for their water. Now, just recently here, this week, Monday, uh, we got a good example of why the protesters are so concerned. Um, <laughs> Monday, there was an explosion on the Colonial Pipeline that goes uh, goes through Alabama. Actually, uh, there was a worker who was using uh, he was using an excavator, and he ran into the line, and there was a huge explosion. Now, sh- uh, before then, there had been a gasoline spill uh, on another pipeline. And it interrupted about 1.3 million barrels per day of fuel uh, going going south. And that pipeline was shut down. And here we, now we have this explosion in Alabama that killed one worker, injured five others. And the fire is still burning. It is absolutely still burning. And if you haven't seen the pictures of it, um, well, it, it does not look pretty. It doesn't look pretty at all. And so here we have the finest example of why the tribes are so concerned. Their concerns are absolutely valid. And it outrages me and should many other people um, that a compromise can't be reached. Well, Obama, President Obama, he made a statement. And uh, I guess it's good and bad. He said, I think right now the Army Corps of Engineers is examining where, whether there are ways to reroute this pipeline. So we're going to let it play out for several more weeks and determine whether or not this can be resolved in a way that I think is properly attentive to the traditions of the first Americans. Well, that is all well and good. The only part about that statement I don't like is we're going to let it play out for several more weeks. Hasn't this played out for long enough already? Can't a resolution, a compromise be reached before winter? Before we've got protesters out there uh, freezing? Because the North Dakota winter, boy, when when nighttime falls... I don't think anybody wants to be out there. That is dedication if they are still out there uh, in the middle of winter. I mean, I'm in the middle of the desert and it's already cold at night here. I can't imagine what they're going through right now as night has fallen up in North Dakota. 
protesting this pipeline. Uh, and, and it's just the opposition. I'm looking at a photograph right now of uh, a SWAT team. It looks like a tank. Looks like absolutely a tank. It, the guy standing next to it is, uh, is in the SWAT team. And he is, he's just 100% militarized. He's got his camo on. He's got gear strapped to his belt. And uh, he's hiding his face. And he's got sunglasses on and a helmet on as if he's going to fight some kind of very well-armed army. When truly they're just going up against Native Americans who are uh, conducting prayers and a peaceful protest and you know and the mil- the media actually is making them look like they're just uh you know i don't know how do i say this uh, g- guerrilla warfare criminals or something um they're just native americans concerned about their water that's all because look there's only one shot once the water supply is ruined i don't know how long it would take to clean up the mess and will it permanently ruin that land? I don't know. I don't know. They're just trying to protect their land and their water. And who can really blame them for that? And again, I just wish that a compromise could possibly be reached uh, that would make everybody happy so that we still get the pipeline and yet their land uh, is protected. And again, I want to know what you think about this. And don't just sit and listen and wonder who's going to call. I want you to call me right now. And tell me what you think about this and uh, if you've been following the story, because it is it's a very important story that this is still going on hundreds of years later to the Native Americans uh, is, is just absolutely outrageous, in my opinion. Yes, I use gas. Yeah, there's gas in my car right now. Everything that I'm using to broadcast this show comes to you courtesy of big oil. Um, I'm not saying Oh, we can't use oil. I'm saying, can we do something to protect these people's land? Anyhow, let's go to the phones and see what you have to say. To line one, you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Hey, I just wanted to say that uh, I'll tell you what my solution is for the uh, uh, same crisis you're talking about with their water here at the end. So uh, give me a minute here to cover the thing that's really critical also that's going on is the meltdown in our government right now. The FBI is now leaking, uh, and they've got two different sources with reporters on this. So this is like reporting, not opinion now, that are that are leaking out to the media. And I just want to advise people, this is very serious, and you should be going on your Internet to, to Twitter.com forward slash WikiLeaks, W-I-K-I-L-E-A-K-S, Twitter.com forward slash WikiLeaks. Yes. And also the the Drudge Report.com, DrudgeReport.com, and start looking at this stuff. Uh, And I'm going to call it Wienergate, uh, because that's probably what they're going to name it as a matchup with Watergate. But uh, I'm absolutely certain, based on this reporting, that uh, the Clintons are going to be indicted at some point. uh, Well, that's what everybody's saying, but the investigation uh, is still in progress. We don't have a whole lot of information yet, so it's hard to comment on it. 
Well, there, that's what the FBI has leaked with two reports tonight. This just came out this evening. And uh, they say there's a 99% accuracy that Clinton's uh, server was hacked by at least five different intelligence agencies, that it is extremely likely that classified information was on her server, that the Huma Abedin uh, computer that the Wiener uh, guy had, uh, that that was hacked also or they have the information off there that, that that it traces back to the Clinton server and that there there's more than just duplicates. These are not just duplicates. I mean, this is 650,000 uh, unique uh, emails or documents on there that that's, have been found. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I want to see the emails. I want to see actual information. I want I, – I, look – the pundits across the board are absolutely having a nosebleed over all of this, and we don't have very much information. They're speculating on this right now. Well, I want to know what the FBI says after an actual investigation. Um, let's get the information. Let's not speculate on it. I mean, that's that's the best I can do there. We, we just don't have all the information yet. Uh, on that, but what I had asked about was the Dakota Access Pipeline and what's going on over there. I realize that the election is the biggest story going right now, uh, but I think this story of the Dakota Access Pipeline, the explosion that took place in Alabama, deserves our attention just as much. Just as much. Look, the election will be a much, much bigger story when November 8th arrives. And then when we get to November 9th and the votes are starting to be counted, accurate or not, then we'll have something to talk about. If the FBI comes up with information that they are going to release instead of speculative conversation about it, then there will be something to talk about. Until then, it's all hand-wringing, in my opinion. Uh, But I do still appreciate the call very, very much. Uh, Let us go over to line three. You're on the air. Welcome to the program. Hey. Hey. Hey, uh, Heather. Yes, sir. Hi. You know, uh, I'm I'm thinking that you should open up your show with the words "coast to coast and beyond" because uh, the the same the the logo "coast to coast" is not uh, copyright, and you can use that. And I, I wish you would. I'm pretty sure show. it is copyrighted because that's the name of their program. Well, no, there's their their the name of their program is "coast to coast AM," mm-hmm. but. The words coast to coast have been used in the uh, radio business since the 40s. So, in fact, uh, but anyway, look into it because I think that's a good opening for your program. Now, as far as the, uh, they can reroute that that, uh, oil line, I believe, so it won't be passing through sacred grounds. I mean, they have enough money, the oil companies, to reroute that. uh, They do have... Plenty of money to reroute it, although they're complaining, well, it's going to take uh, millions of dollars in, in restructuring. We're going to have to get new easements. We're going to have to get this and that and every other thing. Well, then go ahead and do it. And then the protesters, the water protectors, 
will be happy. They'll go home. Everybody will be happy. Why can't they just yeah. do that? And why do we have to wait a few more weeks to see how this is going to play out? More people are going to get arrested. More people are going to get shot at with rubber bullets and what have you. More people will get maced and tear gassed. Why let that go Absolutely. on? Doesn't that sound like a sane solution to you? It does. It does. I mean, no, I, I don't... <laughs> we live. It's, maybe it's just me, but what I see going on uh, in our society, in our culture anymore, is this, no, it's going to be my way mentality. Only my way. My way or that highway. Well, no, no, no. We got to remember how to compromise. This is how you get things done. And if there would just be a compromise reached here, everybody would be happy. The police could go home. The tribes could go home and be warm at night. And the pipeline could be built on an alternate. The alternate route is already um, outlined. Why can't they just go ahead and do it? Spend a few more million dollars like it's going to make a difference to the big oil companies, right? Absolutely. And, you know, one final thing about WikiLeaks, you know, that is uh, most people believe it's unreliable. I mean, it can be tampered with. No one should use uh, WikiLeaks as a source of information because it's, uh, you know, this guy, he's, he's uh, you know, he's outside of the law now, and he's on the run. And uh, these, uh, a lot of these WikiLeaks have already been proven to be false. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's not a very good source of information. So I wouldn't put all my uh, eggs in one basket when it comes to WikiLeaks. Yeah, we live in a day and age where WikiLeaks and Twitter are apparently news sources, which is pretty weird for me. Uh, I appreciate your call very, very much and your thoughts and your input on that. Um, you know, until until the FBI releases concrete information, again, I just don't know how I can comment on it. I mean, we can speculate all night long if you want. It's not going to really get us anywhere. And it'll probably result in a lot of frustrated people turning the program off, right? I hear your heads nodding. <laughs> Okay. Oh, two line four. You're on the air. Welcome to the program. Hey, Heather. This is Mike calling uh, from Ohio. Hi, Mike. And I'm calling in regards to Standing Rock. And I don't know if you remember, I called you from Standing Rock in late September. Oh, that was you. Oh, so cool to hear. Are you still out there? No, I wish I was. I had to come back because I was out of vacation time. I had to get back to work. But I'm constantly picking up feeds from out there on what's going on, keeping in contact with as many people as I can, linked onto uh, social media with the people that are actually on the front lines. Uh, we're gathering together to protest on the Ohio State Capitol Friday because they sent 37 Ohio troopers out there. So we're kind of like working with that, like as far as right now, back on the home fronts. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of what's going on, too, and, and when I was out there, you know, I... I yeah, the conversation when I talked to you was so blurry because it was such a flurry of activity for the week. But um, a lot of also what they're not saying is is that the media is not saying, of course, they're ignoring the whole situation as a whole. And you're right, it is really about the water, is the primary thing, and the sacred burial grounds. And two points to that also is that easement where, like, a lot of the people that are pro-pipeline are saying, is like, well, that easement's, you know, like, just north of the reservation, so I haven't touched the reservation. That's originally from the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty. That's originally the land that was taken over by the Army Corps of Engineers, I think it was in 1959. Yeah, so yeah and that treaty is just being, that, over. that treaty is being conveniently ignored. Oh, absolutely. 
And and the other point of that is is that pipeline. And I don't even think I knew this back in late September because I've been kind of getting you know trying to keep as much as possible. Is that pipeline was originally slated to go north of Bismarck, which is like thirty five miles north of the reservation. Yeah, that's the alternate route I'm talking about. Yes. Bismarck doesn't want it because of the risks involved. Uh-huh, right. And this is exactly why the protesters are protesting. Uh, and I don't yeah. say protester as if that's a bad thing. I mean, that's our right in this country. And they are peacefully protesting. And yet the yeah. the media that is on the story makes them out to be uh, like uh, virtually causing a riot oh. out there. When oh. you've been oh. there and you can say... That they're they're not they're doing a peaceful protest, right? Heather, the day I the day I had to go up the day I went up to call you from the camp, I had to literally get in my car, leave camp, drive up two miles to the hilltop, and I'm going to get to a point about the uh, security. It's broken down into three camps, and one is the the creek you're talking about. The camp I was in was just east of the creek, and that's the one they're raiding right now. Hang on, let me get in the left lane here. This thing is sound like riding a buckboard here. I'm driving a semi right now with the headset on, so. Um, but um, when I came back from talking to you, I literally, like, those guys had seen me leave, come back an hour later after talking, and it was like, do you have any drugs on you? Do you have any alcohol on you? Were you out drinking? Any weapons on you? And I was like, you know, I mean, they are serious about, like, no weapons, no drugs, no alcohol. We're keeping this peaceful. The uh, traditional elders told them the only way we're going to win this is if we keep it peaceful. And they're adhering to that. And the... Uh, and the, the mainstream media, outside of, like, you know, the Lakota Times or outside of your piece tonight, is really kind of not focusing on the fact that this has been peaceful. Uh, over the weekend, I don't know if you saw anything that happened over the weekend, but they had planted, they had one guy that fired off some shots with an AR-15 in the camp, and when they finally got the guy, they found DAPL security badges on him. Oh. He was a plant from in there. And so, like, you know... Energy transfer partners in them, you know, they are pushing really hard. They set fire about, I'd say, about a quarter mile up the hilltop on Saturday night. I was watching the feeds, and they were, and somebody they think was probably Dapple Security set a fire up there to try to blame the protesters. And then they got pictures of when, like, you saw these, like, I don't there's a lot of pictures running around of, like, women getting attacked with, like, by, like, a group of cops with batons. They had a picture of an agitator pushing her into the cops before they jumped on her. Jeez. So it's like they're trying to push the protesters and make them seem like, you know, they're, you know, make to them look away. very, very violent when in yeah. actuality they're, they're not. They're defending themselves against the militarized police that have showed up. I mean, uh, we'll yeah. have to talk about this more this coming Friday on, on Open Lines because I'm sure it's going to develop until then. Uh, thank you very much for the call. Um, uh, he was there. There's a man who was there and saw everything with his own eyes. Um I find the whole situation just incredible. Look, the independent media is all over this, but the the mainstream media, you know, all they want to do is speculate about emails, which is fine, but I wish they would just turn some attention to to what's going on out there over on North American Skype. You're on the air? Is that me, Heather? Well, it is. I wish we had more time. What's on your mind, man? Oh, um... A couple alternatives. Um, this is Bear, and I'm uh, in the chat room, unknownspirit.com. Nice. Cool. I hope they're uh, already enjoying the show. Oh, yeah. 
And, um, you know, the uh, Air Force has a tunneling machine which will actually, um, you know, could bore under and glassify the uh, dirt to where it would be a contained kind of uh, uh, pipeline. So if there was a leak, it would be contained and they could pump it out and go Mm -hmm. repair it. But the thing I don't understand is is why don't they do that on BLM land and give uh, Harry Reid something to think about? <laughs> well, look, if we can think up alternatives, why can't the Army Corps of Engineers come up with alternatives so that everyone's happy? All right, Stephen Browdy is going to be joining the program after this break, and I can't wait to get to it. I'm Heather Wade. We'll be right back. Stephen Browdy is Emeritus Professor and former Chair of Philosophy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's a past president of the Parapsychological Association, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Scientific Exploration, and the recipient of numerous grants and awards, including a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the prestigious F.W.H. Myers Memorial Medal from the Society for Psychical Research. <clears throat> There's a mouthful. His earliest research was in logic and the philosophies of language and time. After that, he shifted focus to the evidence for psychic phenomena to see if it would provide new insights into traditional problems in the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mind. He also turned his attention to hypnosis and multiple personalities, writing extensively on the unity of consciousness and psychopathology. In addition to approximately a 100 published articles, he's written six books, including ESP and Psychokinesis, A Philosophical Examination, The Limits of Influence, Psychokinesis, and the Philosophy of Science, The Gold Leaf Lady, and Other Parapsychological Investigations, which we'll talk about tonight. I'm uh, very curious to hear all about this. His latest book is Crimes of Reason on Mind, Nature, and the Paranormal. What a, what a cool title. Stephen is also a professional pianist and composer and an award-winning stereo photographer, and it sure is a pleasure uh, to welcome him to the program tonight. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, this is uh, this is so interesting, and your bio alone is so interesting. I hardly know where to start. Um, how how does a guy like you get involved with the paranormal? Through the back door. Um, it all started when I was in graduate school, and in those days, I fancied myself to be a kind of hard nosed materialist, not for any particularly good reason. It was just the kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating in those days. And it was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a couple of friends came over, and we'd seen the only movie in town. And they said, well, let's play this game called Table Up. What they meant was, let's have a seance. Uh-huh. And they knew, about, they knew as little about parapsychology as, as I did. And they said this was a game, and that when it worked, it was a lot of fun. So for the next three hours, in broad daylight, I watched my table rise in the air and spell out answers in response to questions. And there's no way I can really describe this that would quell all the skeptical concerns your listeners might be having about this, but I can tell you that my friends were not playing a practical joke on me. I'm not even sure they had a sense of humor. 
it was broad daylight. It was my table. Uh, if one of my friends got up to leave the room, the table still rose under our fingers, and we were standing next to the table, so our knees were certainly not pushing it up. So it, this was obviously impressive to me, but I was busy writing a dissertation on temporal logic. I had no room for this in my conceptual framework, and I knew I couldn't really trust my mentors with uh, discussing this. So I literally put it out of mind and focused on getting my Ph.D., getting a job, and then getting tenure. And once I had tenure and had published a lot of respectable, I think, articles in uh, philosophy, mainstream articles, I remembered what had happened to me back in graduate school. And I realized if I was an honest scholar, I really needed to confront what had happened. And I knew that some very well-known philosophers had taken parapsychological research seriously. So I read what they had to say, and I decided there really was something worth sinking my teeth into about this. And then I figured if I was going to do this, I might as well become a member of the community of scientists and academics who were really studying the evidence so that I could really be up to speed on whatever was going on. So I've done that, and I'm now about as much of an insider as it's possible to be in the community of serious researchers into parapsychology. Well, that's to be commended. Uh, we, we're constantly talking about, well, you know, there's interesting things to be found in the paranormal, but mainstream science won't touch it. And we're finding out slowly but surely that that just isn't true. There are regular mainstream scientists looking at this, uh, taking a, a serious look at it um, as far as, uh, you know, psychic abilities, uh, haunting activity, just all the paranormal phenomena that we talk about on this show. It really is being looked at. It's just not being talked about very much. It's also not as widespread as it used to be. When I got into this in the 1970s, there were five or six major parapsychological labs in the U.S., three of them in Texas. Mm -hmm. And now there are none. What did they do in those labs? Well, in those days, um, they were doing a lot of uh, electronic psychokinesis work, just attempting to influence the output of random generators of one kind or another, primarily. Mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, research was also going on uh, into Gonsfeld-type uh, ESP experiments. And, of course, back on the West Coast, there was the remote viewing stuff going on at SRI International. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, was there any evidence uh, to point to anything about psychokinesis? Was there any anything found to uh, support the reality of psychokinesis? Oh, absolutely. There were some really good experiments done by a former associate of J.B. Ryan, who was working in those days in Texas, uh, in San Antonio. Um, his name was Helmut Schmidt not the former chancellor of West Germany. Um, he was a physicist who had a real interest in designing and a, and a, a flair for designing very creative experiments. Uh, probably the most interesting one. The idea of, his, of all of his experiments basically was to see if people could make or subjects could make random devices behave non-randomly. Mm -hmm. And then they could compare their scores to the control runs, presumably random control runs. And in one case, Schmidt wanted to see if uh, cockroaches, big Texas cockroaches, had psychokinetic abilities. I don't know if you've seen these big Texas cockroaches. They're really monstrous. I can and just imagine. I'll let my imagination uh, work on that. <laughs> they're about the size of a human hand. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Right. 
And so he found that if he hooked them up to a machine that administered electric shock to them, they'd flip over. And so he hooked them up to this device that would administer electric shocks, and that was hooked up to a random generator that was set to give them shocks about 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. And Schmidt hypothesized that if the um, cockroaches had PK or psychokinetic abilities, they would influence the random generator to get fewer shocks than would be predicted on the hypothesis of chance. And it turned out that they got more shocks than would be predicted on the hypothesis of chance. So if you believe in experimenter PK, which I certainly do, um, unless you think that the cockroaches actually like getting the shocks, despite appearance to the contrary, um, the major hypothesis that I think best explains this is that Schmidt was using his own psychokinetic abilities to exhibit his aversion to his subjects. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, that's pretty good. Well, I am familiar with the Princeton eggs um, yeah. and uh, how those are – well, they're constantly running, and they are random number generators. And whenever there's a major world event, uh, it would seem even hours before anybody really knows about the world event, the random number generators start to display a change. Uh, and and I've always found that really interesting um, on just a mass consciousness uh, level, right? Yes, it's very interesting, but very hard to interpret. Uh, I mean, parapsychologists uh, vigorously debate the significance of the uh, uh, global consciousness uh, data. But I agree with you. It's extremely interesting and very suggestive. Whether it can be explained as a kind of experimenter effect or multiple experimenter effect, I mean, look, there's a big problem in parapsychology about doing experiments. And it's that it's called a source of psi problem. And the problem is that there's really no way to tell what the hell's going on. I mean, if you really take parapsychological ability seriously enough to test for it, you're testing, you're agreeing to test a phenomenon which, if it exists, can subvert whatever controls you want to impose. So think about PK or psychokinesis for a minute. I mean, most parapsychologists who do work in that area assume, I think ridiculously, that all the people engaged in a parapsychological experiment are going to adhere to this kind of idiotic gentleman's agreement, where only the official subject will use only the psychic ability being tested for, and that he or she will use that ability only when the experimenter's gun goes off, you know, only at the appointed time. Mm -hmm. And that nobody else connected with the experiment will use whatever psychic abilities they might have to muddy the waters. But the fact is, there's no way to control for whose PK is influencing the results. We don't have a PK meter you can go around and test with. And even if you had a PK meter, if you can affect electronic devices, you could affect the meter. So you've got a regress of confirmation. There's no way to tell who's influencing what. It could be the official subject. It could be the experimenter. It could be an onlooker. It could be somebody living in the trunk of an old Studebaker in Gary, Indiana, for all you know. Well, true. And if we're to believe uh, the double slit experiment that uh, observing affects the outcome, then anybody there, anybody nearby, especially anybody that knows this is going on, whether we realize that they have some kind of psychic gift or not, if they're observing it, they're affecting the outcome. And like you say, we don't know who has this ability and who doesn't. It could be just someone standing there who's very skeptical of the whole thing, and they're thinking in their mind, oh, this is not going to work, and then it doesn't work. Right, exactly right. And that's why I've 
been recommending for decades now that it's premature to bring parapsychological abilities into the lab and test because we don't really know what we're testing for. We have no way of controlling for it. And so my approach has always been to study star subjects who seem to be able to be associated with dramatic, usually PK events, more or less reliably. And then, because then you at least have some prima facie reason for thinking they have something to do with it, which often you can't do in the lab. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unless it's an experimenter like Schmidt, who got good results over and over and over. So that's why a lot of people thought Schmidt was really the phantom PKer in all his uh, experiments. <laughs> he could have been without realizing it. Exactly. You know, we don't know. We just don't know enough about the human consciousness. We don't know enough about the brain. We don't really know what the spark of life is. Um, And so we don't know enough, like you said, to even have controls, which every good experiment relies on. Um, So it's premature to study, I think, psyabilities in the lab. I mean, I understand the desire to do that, but until we have some idea what the role of psychic abilities is in everyday life, we have no idea what we're trying to bring into the lab. But for all we know, it might be as inappropriate to study psychic abilities in the lab as it would be to study sexuality in the lab or uh, humor or athletic abilities, which can only be studied in their uh, actual game context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in any of your research, philosophical or, or otherwise, uh, have you found that, that – well, what am I trying to ask here? Is there – the potential in all of us to have the ability for psychokinesis? That's one of the big unanswered questions still. I mean, we don't know whether psychic abilities are like musical or athletic abilities, which are unevenly distributed among the population, or whether we all of us function psychically all the time, but usually unconsciously and more or less reflexively, just like we control our digestive processes more or less regularly. Uh, And it may be that what distinguishes the good psychic subjects from everyone else in that case would be that some people have a kind of meta ability, the ability to demonstrate this, like an advanced practitioner of yoga who can control vasoconstriction and vasodilation in their hands so that one half of the hand is warm and the other half is cold. I mean, we all of us influence our vasoconstriction and vasodilation, but not to that degree. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, that would be that displays a very advanced ability. Uh, right. But you know, we we often talk about, and I was talking about this last night. You know, we often talk about. Well, I something just told me to fill in the blank. I had a gut feeling that such and such was going to happen, and so it makes me think that you know whether we're ready to accept it or not, all of us have some sort of I don't know antenna. You know, I'm not saying we're mind readers, right. um, but we can sort of get a, a a feeling on certain things through our day to day life. And I wonder if that could translate into a greater ability. I guess maybe someday we'll find out. That's my hunch, too, that probably we all have some sort of more or less crude, everyday kind of psychic ability. It may be more than that. We may be, you know, well, let me back up for a second. One of the recommendations I often make to people in parapsychology is that if we want to find out what the natural history of psychic functioning is, we should look to places where it might demonstrate itself conspicuously. And I think that one of those places would be to look at people who are remarkably lucky or unlucky. And I think unlucky people are especially interesting. 
there's an old Yiddish distinction between a shlemiel and a shlemazel. A shlemiel is someone who spills soup on himself, and a shlemazel has it spilt on him. So <laughs> the idea is that a shlemazel is a, a victim of the universe at large or impersonal forces, somebody the universe is just crapping on. And shlemazels really exist. I was actually married to a shlemazel at one point. In fact, her entire family was a lightning rod for misfortune. And I lived next door. To, I, I don't want to talk about that case for various reasons. I lived next door to some schlamazels at one point, and their life was a living hell of aggravations and annoyances. It seemed that everything they bought was defective. I mean, their cars were always in the shop, even though they both had cars that were noted for their reliability. Electronic equipment would fail to work right out of the box. Their a, a solid wooden rocking chair bought the second day they owned it with their infant son on it. And my favorite example of their schlamazelness, if that's even a word, the wife bought what she thought was a, a poster-sized photograph of the Golden Gate Bridge, and she had it framed and hung on her living room wall. And I had to tell her, Donna, that's the Brooklyn Bridge. So here's a woman. I don't know if you or your listeners know about the old idea of the, this classic image of a sucker or a loser, someone who's tricked into buying the Brooklyn Bridge. Here's a woman who both literally and figuratively bought the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> You know what? That is uh, very interesting to study very lucky or very, very unlucky people and try to figure out, you know, is this their mind doing this? Is this just coincidental events? You know, what what is causing that? Is anything causing that? Or is it just pure accident? Are some of us just very lucky or very, very unlucky? Um, it, it could be. You know, we have the ability to make ourselves sick or make ourselves healthy. We might have the ability to make ourselves lucky or unlucky. Or in a more sinister uh, scenario, somebody could be doing it to them. You know, one of the reasons I think people are scared about PK and get very irrational when you talk about it is that if you take the existence of any psychokinesis seriously, even the ability to move a compass needle a millimeter. If a person can do that by thought alone, it's a very small step conceptually from doing that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. Well, sure. So yeah. the existence of any PK at all means that we have to take seriously a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate, usually condescendingly, only with so-called primitive cultures. This is a worldview where we might have to take responsibility for all kinds of things that we'd just as soon be bystanders for. Mm. And the human mind has, oh gosh, just a serious grasp on, I want to control everything. We want to be in control. I don't blame anybody for wanting to be in control. But if someone can affect somebody's health with their mind, okay, now we're out of control. Uh, Yes, it opens a Pandora's box that we don't like. Yeah, and nobody, uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most of us aren't prepared to accept that. I agree. I mean, there are certainly parts of the world where that image of the way things work goes down very smoothly, where people take for granted that you can influence people negatively or positively, where you take seriously the evil eye and things like hexing. But in developed countries, that doesn't go down very smoothly. Mm-mm, no, because uh, look, everybody's getting up, going to going to their job, maintaining their house, taking care of their family, and they don't need um, they don't need such a monkey wrench. They don't want a, a an unpredictable factor thrown into their day. Okay, so I'm keeping I'm running a tight ship here in my household, and someone can just uh, thwart all of that with the power of their mind. Oh no, I don't think so. I'm not gonna. 
I'm not going to yeah. allow that. I'm going to scream and pound my fist and say, there's no such thing. <laughs> and you also don't want to worry if you have a negative thought about somebody and that person has an accident or a serious other kind of serious misfortune. You don't want to have to worry about whether you might have had something to do with it. That We're just not comfortable with that. Oh, no, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, th- that's happened to me before where I thought, well, that guy can just go ahead and get in a car wreck. Oh, my gosh. He got in a car wreck. Okay. Uh. <laughs> but, you know, a lot, a lot of people take seriously the idea that we can pray for healing or for world peace. But there's no force that can be used exclusively for the good. So you've got to be consistent about this. You can't have it just one way. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to be open to the possibility of doing things positively with the influence of our mind, we have to take what comes with that. And that's the possibility of doing harm. Well, exactly. Exactly. This can go both ways. And then it becomes, you know, then you start getting into the old battle of good and evil. You know, well, will good prevail? Will evil prevail? You know, I mean, it just, it, it, like you said, it opens up the philosophical Pandora's box that most of us just are not ready for, or most of us really don't have the time to think about all these things. You know, we're busy from the moment we open our eyes until when we go to bed. And most people are going, look, I'm trying to watch the news here. I'm trying to figure out who to vote for. I don't have time to figure out if you can damage me with your mind, okay? Uh, It's just not taken seriously. But I think that the research should continue because uh, finding out more and more about our, our consciousness, the human mind, the spark of life, what consciousness is, uh, is going to do, I think, far more good than harm. Teaches us about well, ourselves. I we, yeah, I think we have to go forward and take whatever bitter pill um, we need to take. I don't think it's going to be a pretty picture. I don't see how it can be, because if we can influence things unconsciously, I think few of us, if any, are saints all the way down to the bottom of our psyche. I mean, we might think that, you know, in most social obvious respects, we're good people. But uh, there's nobody among us who's never had a negative thought or a nasty thought. So if thoughts can kill, I mean, who knows what our unconscious might be getting away with? Oh, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean... Oh, gosh, I remember when The Secret came out and everybody was just all on fire about it. And I'm going, wait a minute, this is really a one-sided look at this whole thing. Um, you're, you're missing the other side. What about doing bad with your thoughts? What about people who uh, have only ever had happy thoughts and yet bad things happen to them? You know, this is a real candy-coated way of, uh, of looking at this. And, and it really, I don't know, I, I was the odd one out, Stephen, because I was the only person of all the people I knew who was just, who didn't just jump on board with that. Uh, because, I don't know, I guess I just thought too much about it. That's what my friends were actually telling me. Well, you're just, you're overthinking this. Just think good, and good things will happen in your life. Yeah, well, sure, okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) I don't think we have that kind of control over everything that goes on under the surface. I think you're right, and I think it's easier to believe that we do have mental control over what's going on in our life and the world than to believe it's an unpredictable, dangerous world that we live in. Right. I mm. agree with you 100%. Yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, well, already, I guess we're done. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>
Thank you for joining the program tonight. Uh, have a good night. No, uh, we we do have to take a break right now. But when we come back, I want to get into the story of the gold leaf lady. I mean, that's really sure. what we came here to talk about. Uh, so I, I want to hear all about this, and I probably will have a lot of questions for you along the way. Uh, so we'll be back in just a few minutes here. My guest tonight is Stephen Browdy, a very interesting individual. If you've never heard about the Gold Leaf Lady, you don't want to turn this program off because you'll hear all about it when we come back. I'm Heather Wade. Oh, and just about every device I have over here is blowing up because after 10 innings, the Cubs won the World Series. The first World Series they've won since 1908. Oh my gosh, they're probably so happy right now. I bet there's baseball caps flying in the skies. And there's a bunch of happy Cubs fans out there. Uh, Stephen Browdy is my guest tonight. I'd like to welcome him back to the program. Uh, welcome back, Stephen. So were you watching uh, the games for the World Series? I have to admit I was peeking at it. <laughs> have you been watching uh, the past few games? Have you watched the whole thing? Uh, no, I wasn't able to watch the whole thing, but I have seen some of the games. Mm, I bet the crowd absolutely went wild when the Cubs won. I'm sure they did. I didn't get to see that, unfortunately. We were too busy. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's all these messages uh, on my phones here. It's been 108 <laughs> years since they won. People are sending me messages like, well, the curse is broken. <laughs> the Chicago, Chicago Cubs won. They won. They won. So, hey, good news for them. That is pretty cool. I just As soon as I saw all these messages come in, uh, this image of a stadium filled with people tossing their baseball caps in the air uh, came to mind. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I well, hope. I'm happy for the Cubs. Yeah, so am I. And um, gosh, I hope they uh, get onto a new winning streak because of this. And, I mean, way to persevere for them. Uh, after all this time. So uh, the Gold Leaf Lady. Um, right. Really interesting. How did you even find out about this case? Well, people contact me with their good cases. That's one of the advantages of, first of all, having tenure and um, also just having a reputation at various points in my life for studying these kinds of things or at least being willing to go out in the field and look at cases that lab scientists don't want to touch. And so I was told about this woman in Florida on whose body would appear instantaneously and spontaneously large quantities of a golden-colored foil, very thin material, sort of like the material in the wrapping for Hershey's Kiss, but much thinner. Mm. And so naturally I was interested and I went to see her, and I've seen the stuff appear before my very eyes. I mean, I could be sitting across from her at dinner, uh, and suddenly something would appear on her face, and it was clear that she hadn't reached up there and applied the material to her face. Um, and there's a lot of firsthand testimony from a lot of people, uh, very compelling firsthand testimony uh, about how this, the material appears in large quantity right before the very eyes. People have said they were holding her um, hand and they watched her arms start to glisten a little bit and then suddenly it would just erupted in this foil. Jeez. I mean, you know, she doesn't have to buy gold and, uh, you know, she can save it 
and uh, well, it's probably, not really gold. It's not really gold. Ah, oh, all no. right. Let me get, let me give you some background about this case. First okay. of all, it's important to know the woman's name is Katie. Okay. Um, she's a Florida housewife. I I haven't spoken to her in a number of years, so my guess is she's now in her mid sixties. Mm. Uh, she was born to a poor family in the mountains of Tennessee. She was the tenth of twelve children. Um, for various ugly reasons uh, at home, she had to drop out of school in the first grade. So as a result, she's functionally illiterate. I mean, she can write her name. She knows the letters of the alphabet, but she can't put any of the letters together to make words or sentences. Um, She's a great subject to work with because unlike a number of other subjects I've worked with, she cooperates fully with investigators. She she couldn't be more accommodating. And, I mean, she lets people probe her, look at her body. Um, she's just an honest, I think, a very good person. She's she, also not a professional psychic. Oh, okay. She which, probably which, wants to get down to the bottom of this just as much as everybody does. Well, she certainly did because this particular phenomenon was an affliction. She had no control over this. So it could happen when she was checking out, you know, buying something at the 7-Eleven. Suddenly this stuff appears on her. You know, what do you say to the cashier? (laughs) Sorry about that. I just have this little skin problem. We're working on clearing it up. Trust me, I've tried every cream, okay? Just take my money and I'll leave. (laughs) She's a, she turns out she's a very versatile psychic. But the, the interesting thing about Katie is that um, none of her psychic abilities appeared until she married her second, and as far as I know, still her current husband. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, it's a difficult marriage. And in lots of classic respects, Katie resembles your typical poltergeist agent. Now, your listeners may know that the usual profile of a poltergeist agent is that Poltergeist cases are person-centered cases as opposed to haunting cases where the phenomena stick to a certain place. We know that poltergeist cases are person-centered because if the person leaves where the phenomena had been happening, the phenomena follow. Yes. And the received view about a poltergeist case is that the subject, the poltergeist agent, is usually a disturbed teenager or adolescent, somebody with some serious emotional issues no conventional way to resolve them. And so the poltergeist phenomena are like a kind of brute psychic flailing about. It's almost as if the person has these deep feelings, can't get rid of them conventionally and goes woof, and then things shatter or fly around or burst into flame or what have you. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it's not just teenagers who have um, emotional problems. Marriage is also a fertile ground for, for emotional troubles, as I can personally attest. So, um, I think in Katie's case, this has a lot to do with her marriage. And in fact, early on in her marriage to her current husband, she was having poltergeist-like phenomena. So objects were moving around the house and appearing and disappearing. And one day, a carving set appeared out of nowhere. And her husband said to her, what good is it if it isn't money? And then two days later, her body started to break out in this golden-colored foil. So if if you want my half-assed pop psychological analysis of this, it would be that symbolically the foil satisfies Katie's husband's demand for something valuable, 
But Katie doesn't have to bear the responsibility of being the goose that laid the golden egg. She doesn't have to worry about actually being able to produce something valuable, which I think would put intolerable pressure on her. And not only that, I think this is a very safe way for her to express her rage against her husband. I think she feels trapped in her marriage in lots of ways. And so she's not giving her husband what he wants. He wants something precious, and she's giving him fool's gold. She's giving him the psychic finger. (laughs) Well, it's almost like what a person is is dealing with in their everyday life is too much, and the mind finds other outlets. Yes, very creative under the surface. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had friends, uh, you know, young people, 13, 14 years old. They're in a very uh, difficult transitional time in their life, and yeah, in their house, things move around, light bulbs explode, the whole nine. Uh, And and I've always wondered if it isn't, you know, this is the mind's way of, there's no other way to deal with it. You can't talk about it. There's no one around to talk about it with or what have you. And so the mind finds a way uh, to deal with it. It's a very effective way, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me tell you how weird Katie is. I mean, she's weirder than this would lead you to believe. I mean, she's a very versatile psychic. I mean, once her psychic ability started to erupt, all sorts of things happened. There are reports of seeds germinating in her hands. Uh, Some people have seen her bend metal. I haven't seen that. Um, She's reportedly a healer. I've heard some very interesting anecdotal reports of that. Even though Katie's functionally illiterate, when she's in a mediumistic trance, she writes out uh, quatrains from Nostradamus in medieval French and Latin. What? I have seen her do that. Um, and wow. she's worked with she's worked with the police to solve crimes. I can tell you some good anecdotes about that if you're interested. Oh, sure would. Yes, I'd love to hear about this. Well, I mean, one really good one is um, there was there was an island near Vero Beach, Florida, where Katie lives. And I think it's called John's Island. There are a lot of very expensive homes there. I think Prince Charles has a home there. And a large amount of jewelry was stolen from one of the homes, and the police had been unable to solve it. And the head of security on the island had heard about Katie and her work with police elsewhere. And he figured, well, nothing else was working. He'd give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And what he did was... He and a couple of his colleagues drove around John's Island with Katie and would just coast down various streets, not giving, not wanting to give her a hint of which house it was where the robbery had taken place. And as they were coasting past um, the house where it occurred, Katie said, that's the house. And she described the interior of the house. She described the number of people um, who were involved in the getaway car. And she described it in such detail that the head of security told me he actually, for a moment, thought that Katie might be a suspect. And as they were driving away, uh, oh, I should say that the tips that they got from Katie allowed them to find the the thieves, and they recovered more than $185,000 worth of uh, stolen jewelry. Oh, incredible. But the other thing is, as they were driving away from the house, Katie said she smelled marijuana. And she said she heard helicopters, and nobody else in the car smelled anything or heard anything. And she said, well, in two weeks, all of this will happen. And the head of security didn't think much of it at the time, but he did make a note of it. And two weeks later, almost to the hour, 25 bales of pot washed the shore, and there are federal helicopters flying overhead. (laughs) Now, 
it's not unprecedented for pot to arrive that way in Florida. Right, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> but still, the, the coincidence and the timing was, was pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. You know, psychic ability is something, gosh, that I wrestle with, Stephen, because I'm, I'm skeptical of it. But I want to believe, I want to believe that we have this ability, uh, not just individual special people, but all of us. Um, and it's so difficult <clears throat> when people declare, well, I am a psychic. Well, okay, but give me some data that can kind of back up your claim there. Uh, and I love it when there are psychics that do have uh, things they've worked on, police cases they've worked on. Another gentleman I know uh, that also claims to be a psychic and he did work with police in his area to solve uh, murders and missing people cases and he had to stop for the same reason because the police thought he was in on these crimes based on the information he was giving them so i find it interesting that she was as well some of the cases where she worked with the police uh, that wouldn't be suspected for example when um she was working with some Atlanta police. In one case, she was trying to solve a murder. And um, they showed her a picture of the victim. And when Katie looked at it, her hands and arms broke out in big uh, scratch marks. And nobody had told her this. But um, when the victim was fleeing from her assailant, she was running through some bushes. And her face and uh, arms and hands got all scratched up. Wow. And wow. Similarly, they, they took Katie to the gravesite of another victim. And as Katie approached the site, she doubled over and fell to the ground. And there was a big lump in the back of her head. And again, nobody had told Katie this, but the victim had been killed by blunt force trauma to the back of the head. Oh, my God. Somebody get her on the Long Island serial killer case. She will mm. wrap that case up. <laughs> Wow, uh, that is incredible. And what explanation do do we have? Uh, I'm sure you've thought about this as to how these things can happen to her when she's uh, thinking about a, a victim of any given case. Well, I, my guess would be that somehow she's using ESP about what actually happened, whether it's retrocognition or ESP of what the police knows. And then her imagination being as vivid as it is, it just manifests physically on her. Without it's, it's her, like medical students who get the diseases that they study or get the symptoms that they study. That happens? Oh, yeah. It happens all the time. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Also an interesting phenomenon. Um, so how successful is Katie? Uh, has she solved every crime she's asked to look at? I actually don't know the answer to that. And uh, mm. regrettably, I've lost touch with her and her principal investigator in Florida passed away a number of years ago. So oh. um, so I haven't been able to follow up on this the way I'd like. Oh, okay. Well, still very, very interesting, the cases that you do know <clears throat> do know about um, and, and how that can happen, how we can... Uh, it, it makes me always think of quantum entanglement. Somehow, some way, she is uh, on a quantum level, uh, become entangled with the victim, so much so that she takes on their wounds. Um, and, and I just find that to be, there's no other word but incredible for that. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. I agree with you. Well, it's one and, of the best cases I've ever studied. Wow! And so how long has this gold leaf been appearing on her skin? 
I studied her in the 1980s um, and early 90s. And I'd say, it, well, to my knowledge, it's still happening to this day. The last I heard, which was shortly before her principal investigator died, and that was about 10 years ago, um, she was still having uh, eruptions of the foil. Um, but it, it occurs for no apparent reason. I mean, we've all this time tried to find some sort of regularities. Does it happen at emotionally charged times or times of calmness? The fact is that it could happen at any time. She could go for months and nothing happens. She could go for then for weeks or days or longer periods and uh, the foil just doesn't leave her alone. She told me that her septic tank is filled with it because she would wake up in the morning covered with the foil and she'd have to shower it off. That was my next thought, actually, was, you know, how does she deal with this on a daily basis? You take a shower and you think you're all clean and well and good. You start getting dressed and now here comes all this foil, this pesky gold foil. It's got to be, I mean, it's fun at first, right? Wow, this is weird and unexplained. But after a couple of months, that's got to be... It gets old. Annoying and old. And what? That's a good word. <laughs> you know, I just can't imagine going through something. There is no amount of uh, uh, lotion, apricot scrub, nothing that's going <laughs> to solve this for this for this lady, for Katie. Um, and I can't it's imagine. It's not the only thing that appeared on her body. I mean. Um, oh, really? Some, sometimes she would get stigmata-like things or raised welts in the shape of a butterfly or the shape of a cross. Now, that's not paranormal. I mean, we know from the history of hypnosis that good hypnotic subjects can raise welts and other sorts of things on the skin. That's actually a very familiar phenomenon. But it shows that Katie has a way of expressing on her body and sometimes outside her body um, whatever's going on in her mind. She's fascinated with butterflies, so it's interesting that she gets these butterfly-like raised welts on her abdomen. Wow. That is all so incredible. Uh, again, is this the mind's way of dealing with something that she has no other way of of dealing with? You know, she has yeah, no so. other way of... Um, you know, blowing off steam, as it were, uh, and, and it comes out this way on her skin. That's why I say she's like a poltergeist agent in that respect, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it must make for um, interesting times for her husband, because I'm sure if no one else can explain this, and yet the marriage continues, uh, he's got to deal with this on a daily basis. Well, it's a mixed blessing for him. Sometimes he likes um, the attention that he gets because he's married to Katie. Other times he's uh, envious of it, and it makes the marriage even more difficult. One thing I should say, a lot of people think that this is something that's coming out of Katie. I think that's probably not true. The material is brass, so that means it's 80% copper, 20% zinc. And it, it appears on Katie in quantities so large that she'd have to have lethal amounts of those metals in her system. And no medical tests have ever turned up any uh, indications that she has large quantities of copper or zinc in her system. So the question is, what, what is this phenomenon? And for me, the, the main issue is whether it's a materialization, whether it's something that Katie just produces. It doesn't come out of her, even though it appears on her. It sometimes appears on her clothing and objects around the room, too, I should say. It does? Um, Yes. So the question is, is it a materialization, something produced de novo, you know, just 
completely new, or is it an apport, something that is transferred from one location to another? Right. This is, as I'm hearing you describe it, this is what I've started to think, that this is some sort of strange apport that we've never heard of before. Um, but I, that was before I knew it appeared on other objects, like other objects in her house. She could be sitting in her easy chair and all of a sudden the lampshade starts getting gold foil on it. Um, th- there were test objects like sealed aquariums and jars that the experimenter in uh, Florida had. And there were reports, although I never saw it appear there, but I've seen the foil in these sealed jars and containers and I trust the experimenter. Um, so, I don't think this was coming from elsewhere in Katie's house. You can buy this kind of foil in art supply stores. It's it's called a Dutch metal or composition metal, and it's it's a cheap way of doing gilding for frames, picture frames. Mm-hmm. So I tried to have some analytical chemists look at the foil and look at large samples of the foil to. Uh, which I then wanted to compare with commercial samples to see if it looked like more like samples taken from Maryland or from Florida or from some other place. We never got very far with that because it's a very time-consuming process, and most analytical chemists I know didn't have the time or the will or the uh, kind employers who would let them get away with this kind of uh, investigation. Mm -hmm. So it's only partially conducted. Well, I would think um, she would have died a long time ago if this was somehow coming from her bloodstream. Um, Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, she would have been poisoned by it uh, a long time ago. So I've just never heard of anything like this before. This is really, really strange. I mean, the only thing I can think of that compares is Morgellons, but that's different in so many ways. Um, This shows up on the surface, on the surface of her skin, and you've seen it happen with your very eyes. Several times, yes. Several times. Wow. Ah. Just incredible. Yeah, it's one of a kind. It's, it's a great case. Nothing it, else like it. It truly, truly is. Um, and did you ever have any answers for how or why this happens to her? Um, she doesn't know. Uh, no, I mean, none of the people I know who've been involved in this really know what to say. Um, except what I told you before, that it looks like a poltergeist case. But that doesn't tell us whether it's an apport or a materialization. So we still haven't got to the bottom of that. There are plenty of mysteries that still remain. And I don't know how Katie can write uh, quatrains in medieval French or Latin, frankly. She can't even write her uh, a sentence in English. Yeah, and are those exactly duplicated from Nostradamus's own quatrains? Um, some are. Some seem to be novel, but in the style of Nostradamus. I see. Very, very, very strange. Uh, what do skeptics say about her? Um, Paul Kurtz from this uh, SUNY uh, tried to explain this away without paying any attention to what the actual data were. And he had some of his students um, buy some of this brass leaf, put it all over their body and hold it there with hairspray and then walk around and say, well, that explains it. But of course it doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain how it appeared spontaneously in front of people's eyes. And the foils have been very carefully analyzed. We know that there was never any residue of anything like hairspray. We know that, for example, it couldn't have been put in a liquid form on Katie's body, which would then appear when the liquid evaporated, because if that were the case, metallurgists I've talked to said it would appear in a crystalline form, not a rolled leaf. So... 
Um, skeptics have had nothing helpful to say about it. I even had a magician uh, go with me one of these times. In fact, when I was there with the crew from Unsolved Mysteries, there was a magician there, and uh, a skilled magician who worked with David Copperfield. He tried playing with the material and moving it around, but it's very staticky. It's very clingy. It's very hard to manipulate. And Katie would make the stuff appear when all when I inspected her body very carefully. You could see that there was nothing in her hands or arms or abdomen or mouth. Jeez, I'm at a loss for words here, Stephen. This is really, really interesting. But that's a good idea to bring a magician because they kind of know how to fool us, right? So yes. they would be able to figure this out or get to the bottom of it. And if uh, if they can't get to the bottom of it. Science can't get to the bottom of it. Skeptics can't even get to the bottom of it. We've got a genuine mystery here and definitely a special individual. Uh, my God, uh, have you heard of anything like this before? Look, we got to take a break again right now. Um, but Stephen Browdy is my guest. And look, it's an interesting conversation, to say the least. We'll be right back. I'm Heather Wade. I got to tell you what, I'm absolutely astounded by what I have just heard from Stephen Browdy about the gold leaf lady. Well, she does have a name. Her name is Katie. We should refer to her as such. Uh, but this is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And the fact that it can't be debunked. You know, I'd like to welcome Stephen back to the program. Uh, welcome back, Stephen. Thank you. Should this have been in the news? Uh, was it ever in the news that you know of? No, not in the news, but it did get media attention. Unsolved Mysteries did a segment on it. Ah, uh, cool. I think you can find it on the web somewhere. All right. Um, All right. They, they, they completely botched an investigation of Katie in Florida. I was there for that. And they did everything that could possibly be done wrong. Um, they wanted to conduct an experiment with Katie. And... So what we did was we reserved a conference room in a nearby hospital, took all the furniture out. Um, there were th- three main people involved in this. There was Dean Radin from... Uh, oh, yes. I know Mr. Radin. Myself and this magician, Christopher Chacon. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea was to... Split the room in half, have Dean and Chris with Katie on one side of the room. We were going to use the room for six hours. I would be on the other side with a cameraman because I was the only person there Katie knew. And so we wanted her to feel as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. And Katie arrived at the hospital early in the morning, ready to go. She felt very positive that something was going to happen. The idea was that the room would be inspected beforehand. It was completely clean of furniture. If Katie had to leave to go to the bathroom, she would be accompanied there by somebody from the Unsolved Mysteries team to make sure she wasn't accessing some stash of foil. And... The idea was just to watch her for six hours and see what happened. But Katie was very optimistic about this. So she arrived at the hospital, and the director said, instead of starting the experimenter, experiment, said, well, let's shoot, shoot some setup shots. He wanted to shoot Katie going into the entrance of the hospital. He wanted to have a separate 
segment on Katie getting a fluoroscopic examination, walking down the hall to the conference room, and so on. And Dean and I pleaded with the director, don't do this. This can all be done for continuity later. Katie's ready to go. The director refused to listen to us. And so, you know, it takes time to set up these shots. You've got to get the lighting right. You might have to do several takes and so on. And it's B-roll anyway. Who cares? Do it later. Exactly right. But the director refused. So it took six hours to do this. By the time um, he was done shooting all these preliminary shots, it was 3.30 in the afternoon, not 9.30 in the morning when Katie was ready to go. And by that time, Katie was irritated. She was tired. And it didn't surprise me in the least that for the six hours of the experiment, not a thing happened. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, it's not. Pun, but a golden opportunity was missed. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. I mean, if she was in a good mood, uh, then that's the perfect time to just get her in the conference room and just if let it happen. If nothing happens exactly. in the six hours, then nothing happens. You can, of course, follow her around for the rest of the day, go with her to dinner, you know, whatever. Make it casual. Uh, but I exactly they really burned out the fuse. Yeah, right? yeah, they did. Is it the only time uh, there was ever an experiment uh, set up with her? Well, we had a standard protocol with Katie when um, when we investigated her. We would bring her into the uh, uh, extra office at the location of the psychiatrist who was her main investigator, and we'd sit her down in a chair. We'd focus one to three video cameras on her. We'd ask her to lift up her shirt. She was It was Florida, so she was usually wearing a short sleeve T-shirt. We could see that there was nothing on her back, nothing on the inside of her shirt, nothing on her abdomen. We'd inspect her hand and arms. The psychiatrist, who was also her confidant and personal physician, would conduct a slightly more intimate investigation of her. Um, and then we'd watch her, and we'd wait for things to appear. Now... You know about the trickster in parapsychology. This stuff doesn't usually appear when you want it to. I mean, I followed Katie around with a camera, and when the camera was pointed at her, invariably nothing happened. I put down the camera and bingo. Yeah, Yeah, that is the nature of the paranormal. It's very difficult to repeat. Right. So only once was I able to capture the foil appearing on Katie, and it the video that I have is compromised, and I'll tell you why. Because we brought her into the usual room. This time we had only one camera trained on her. There was only one video camera available. And before the foil appears, Katie often felt um, a burning or itching sensation at the spot where the stuff would occur. And she started rubbing her right eye, beneath her right eye. And that looked like a signal that something was going to happen. So I wanted to get a good shot of it. So I zoomed in on her face. And Katie would, it's too bad you can't see all the helpful gestures I'm making here. So Katie would rub beneath her eye and then look at her finger. But when she looked at her finger to see if anything had come off, she took her hand out of camera range. So at one point when she moved her finger away from her eye, um, there was something there. There had been nothing there before. There was certainly nothing on her hand when I inspected it. So there's no way for the viewer of the video to tell that Katie hadn't surreptitiously accessed some foil from around wherever she was and put it on her face. Right. That was outside a camera range, right? Right. All of us who were there know that it just spontaneously appeared. So I have the video of the, the foil appearing, but evidentially it doesn't do much good. Mm. Well, you know, in the paranormal, we have 
most of our evidence is due to eyewitness testimony, right? right. And in a courtroom, eyewitness testimony can be submitted. Uh, and uh, it's not exactly relied upon as the principal source of evidence, but it can be supportive evidence for any given case. Uh, but in the paranormal world, you know, this is what we have most of the time, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, the ufology. We often hear, well, stories. I saw something strange in the sky. I had an abduction experience. I can tell you about it. Um, so I'm very curious. A man with your background, given the things that you've seen, how do you feel about eyewitness testimony when it comes to the paranormal? I think we have to take it seriously, and I think we can do so comfortably. But it depends on the kind of phenomena. I mean, one of the reasons I've focused on psychokinesis, and especially large-scale psychokinesis, is that we have some spectacular cases that are so good that all sorts of standard attempts to explain it away by appealing to the fallibility of testimony just falls flat. So I have focused on unusually strong cases, and some of the strongest are from the history of the uh, spiritualist seance and during the heyday of spiritualism from roughly the mid-1850s to around 1930. And some of those cases are so good that um, there's no way that glib appeals to the fallibility of testimony will cut any uh, ice. So let me give you an example. Sure. My favorite case of all time is probably that of D.D., the initials D.D. Hume, H-O-M-E. He was a, a Scottish medium, and he practiced mediumship for about 25 years. He was never caught cheating, and the repertoire of his phenomena um, was extremely impressive. He could make tables levitate. He could make objects appear and disappear. Um, one of his most spectacular effects was called the earthquake effect, where the entire seance room and its contents would shake violently. And um, nobody outside the room would experience anything anomalous at all. Now, I know some people like to appeal to uh, mass hypnosis, but the fact is we have no evidence for the kind of hypnosis that would be required to do that. It would have to be telepathic influence, and that would be as paranormal as what they're trying to explain away. I mean, the people who appeal to mass hypnosis don't seem to realize that people differ dramatically in their hypnotic susceptibility. You can't just automatically hypnotize a bunch of people to experience the same thing. Oh, sure. Same goes with the shared hallucination theory. Right. Exactly right. So let me give you one of the best examples of D.D. Hume's phenomena. All right. Um, one of his standard phenomena was to make musical instruments play while they were untouched. And he had an accordion. He liked to play with an accordion. And lots of reports of the accordion being held at the end away from the keys and playing melodies on request. Some people even said that the accordion could float around the room untouched playing melodies. Now, Hume thought that this phenomenon was strongest underneath the seance table. And I admit that sounds a little suspicious at first glance, but one of Hume's principal investigators was the physicist uh, William Crookes. And Crookes was a very clever guy, and he realized that if this is what Hume believed, then it's not a good idea experimentally to force Hume any more than necessary out of his comfort zone. If Hume thought that the phenomena were strongest under the table, then by God, let's find a way to test it under the table. Sure. So here's what, here's what Crookes did. 
first of all, he bought a new accordion. He was no fool. So this was clearly not Hume's prop. Secondly, he went to Hume's apartment to pick him up. He watched them change clothes so he could see that Hume wasn't hiding some sort of device on his body that could make the phenomenon occur. But I remind you, this was 1871. There were no miniaturized devices that could do this. <laughs> then he took Hume to his house where, he had, where Crooks had built a, a cage made out of wire and wood, which just fit under his dining room table. And there was room for Hume to get his hand under the tabletop and into the cage to hold the accordion at the end away from the keys. There was not enough room to Hume, for Hume to get his hand all the way into the cage to actually manipulate the accordion. There were nine observers present, two of them seated on either side of uh, Hume, another one stationed under the table with a lamp. Under those conditions, the accordion was seen to move in and out. The keys were depressed. Sounds came out of the accordion. Then Crooks had Hume take his hand out of the cage, place both hands on the table. An electric current was run through the cage, and the accordion was still seen to flop around inside the cage. Now, I think, personally, that was one of the most impressive experiments in the history of parapsychology. No magician has even tried to duplicate that under conditions similar to those in which Hume succeeded. And I think for good reason. They just can't do it. No, you can't. When it's real phenomenon, you can't pull that off in a trick. Right. Because and appeals to the fallibility of testimony just go nowhere in this case. That is one of the most incredible uh, cases I've ever heard of. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I, I, I'm sort of racking my brain now on how that could be faked. But unless he had access to the accordion, there's no way. There's just, there's just no way. Um, and he had no such access. And there was someone with a lamp under the table right. watching it the entire time. Wow. So you have to accuse otherwise reputable people of a conspiracy to be dishonest. And, mm. you know, at that point, that's as, as desperate a gambit as you can imagine. Well, and if they're going to commit a conspiracy, I'd think it would be... It wouldn't be to prove the paranormal. It would be something far more profitable than that. <laughs> right. I mean, the people who who were in favor of, of Hume and testified positively about his phenomena took more grief than anything else for, for doing so. Crooks's career suffered mightily for this. Oh, sure. And they almost always do. Anyone who comes out with anything uh, in the paranormal field, uh, it doesn't matter if you're studying it, if you've witnessed it, uh, you get anywhere near the paranormal and your credibility is going to circle the drain and it's not going to do you any favors. I can't tell you. Just about every day, I either get an email from somebody or talk to somebody on the phone who's had some sort of unexplainable experience and they always say, before I tell you any of this, don't give my name out. And there's a good reason for that, because they don't want the ridicule that comes along with sure. this sort of thing. Um, well, this is why I waited till I got tenure before I did anything. <laughs> I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Right. Yeah. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I find it very interesting. Uh, it's just, to me, uh, no different than any other form of science. We're trying to study our world. And the unexplained, to me, deserves our attention and deserves a study. Because if we can answer questions about the unexplained, if we can explain it, we're going to learn a little something about our world 
that we didn't know before. And what's wrong with that? Um, you know, it's easy to go off the deep end, but why prevent questions? Why prevent investigations? Um, well, for me, what's interesting is that people get so angry when you try to say something positive about the the paranormal. I mean, anger is a very funny uh, emotion to have under those circumstances if you're having what looks like a normal empirical discussion. I mean, you'd think that it would be exciting if you find some phenomenon which we don't yet understand. Um, but people get angry. And for me, that's an indication that there's something more going on there than um, mere intellectual curiosity or lack of it. And that's, it's the fear of Psy. And that's why I was talking earlier about the fear of PK, that it, it makes us worry about opening this Pandora's box in which everything could go to hell if, if we have no control over what's going on around us. Mm -hmm. Science has been trying to make causation more and more impersonal over the past few centuries. And the real upshot, I think, of studying the paranormal is that it brings human beings back into the causal network. And it means that um, we might have, we might be playing a, a much greater role in the way things happen around us than we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. You know, there was a Twilight Zone episode many years ago about a, uh, a guy who flipped a coin and it landed on its edge and the entire day while it was remained on its edge, he could hear the thoughts of everybody around him, and it made his life a living hell. And he was relieved, of course, when the coin fell over and he lost that ability. And this connects with something Charlie Tart in California did a number of years ago. He asked a bunch of fellow parapsychologists to try to imagine um, whether they'd like, whether they would take a pill that would give them that kind of omniscience about other people's thoughts. And it made most of them very uncomfortable. And I think the fact is, we would be, most of us, uncomfortable knowing everything about what others around us are thinking. Oh, sure. If I had that ability, uh, I would... Oh my God, I would become the most unpopular person so fast because I would be confronting people all left and right. You know, oh, I always thought you thought that. Now I know you think that. And by the way, this is what else I know about you. You know, I would, uh, I would have a field day with that. But if I flip that and okay, now somebody else can read my thoughts. Oh, yeah, you bet. I'm squirming in my chair already thinking about exactly that. I don't, right. That's the last bit of privacy we have. And I'm not quite sure we even have that bit of privacy. Uh, our thoughts. That's, that's the only thing left <laughs> that we have. But that's what's at stake in, in the study of all of this. And it's, it suggests the possibility of a kind of world that we thought that only primitive people or people in undeveloped countries would take seriously. But it may be that these people in the undeveloped countries have a clearer picture of the way things are than uh, we enlightened uh, people in technologically advanced societies do. <laughs> well, what happened when you went to Buenos Aires? Uh, you were studying another subject there. Uh, who, oh, yeah, who good was subject that? there. N nothing quite as exotic as uh, Katie. Um, the subject in Buenos Aires is a young guy named Ariel, and just a, a normal guy, except he's also a, a, an occasional poltergeist agent. When he was in his teens, uh, he had some poltergeist-like experiences surrounding the death of his father, uh, which was an emotionally very problematic time for him. And even today, when he gets agitated, things have a tendency to fly off shelves. 
But he was participating in a spiritist sitter group that was organized at the Institute for Parapsychology in Buenos Aires, where people were doing the standard spiritist thing of sitting around a table trying to get table movements and ostensibly controlled by spirits. And through a kind of process of elimination, they figured out that the table was moving only when Ariel was seated at it. And when they put Ariel in front of the table by himself, um, it turned out that Ariel could make the table rise. Now, not totally levitate, but he could make the table rise under his fingers in a very convincing way. Um, and so a number of uh, researchers there started to study him very carefully. They would place Ariel on a scale and the table on a scale, and they could measure very carefully uh, what was happening with Ariel's weight and what was happening to the weight of the table. And Ariel was actually using the readout, the digital readout from the table's weight uh, in a very helpful way. He could see that the table was getting lighter even before it started to lift off the table. So he knew he was on the right track. He was doing the right thing. And so I went down there to check it out for myself and got some good videos of Ariel making the table rise. And what I like about Ariel is that unlike some other subjects I've studied who produce even more dramatic table levitations, in particular this guy Kai Muga in Germany, um, Ariel is not a professional psychic. He's just a regular guy. He has a regular gig. Uh, he's a family man. He has no interest in doing this for money. He's just a very humble, lovely person. And he works in daylight. So... Um, None of the usual problems associated with um, prima donna-esque uh, mediums who do this for a living. So he's been a delight to work with, and I look forward to working more with him. Okay, so the table itself got lighter. Yes. Somehow he's able to change the physical properties of the table itself. I don't know if that's changing the physical properties of the table. You know, is he doing something with gravity? It's not clear what's going on. Ariel describes it himself as a kind of merging with the table. And interestingly, his hands and arms get somewhat colder when he's doing this. Oh. Uh, I have to say there's nothing sticky on his hands. That's very easy to determine. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how it's possible. I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this Uh well, I wondered when my own table rose in the air what was going on. You're right, right. I mean, I, I have often thought that I've been born way too late. I would have loved to have lived during that uh, golden time of, of spiritualism to have seen some of that stuff. You know, I look at pictures of the uh, ectoplasm, and I would just give, you know, my left arm to have been there to, to see that with my own eyes uh is there anything it is cool in a kind of gross way right yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, have you ever seen this ectoplasm uh in, in in this day and age or did that only happen back then no i've seen ostensible ectoplasm from this medium Kaimuga. oh um but this was observed in a principally dark room eventually under very dim red light uh, I watched Kai pull huge quantities of this material out of his mouth. Uh, it fell into a mass on the floor. It moved in and out as if it was being animated from within. And eventually it sprouted a kind of hand on an arm. The hand looked like it was partially open and it would turn left and right, sort of like the head of a cobra. 
What? Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I'm just imagining this, and if I if I saw something like that, I don't know what what I would do. Uh, well, no wonder then they took so many pictures uh, during that time of it, because I mean, how do you even describe that to somebody who who isn't interested in this sort of thing, and you're trying to tell them, look, this is completely outside of your belief system. Check this out, and they're just not even going to be able to accept it uh, because it's so so out there. Uh, but it was very cool. It was very 19th century <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, well, we got we got to talk more about this when we when we come back. I yes. Now I'm very interested in this uh, Kai. What? How do you say his last name? Muga. Muga. Okay. All right. We're going to talk more about him when we come back uh, with my guest Stephen Browdy. And look, the conversation has turned to psychokinesis. What are your thoughts on psychokinesis? We are going to be opening up the phone line soon, and I want to know what you think. For the moment, I'm Heather Wade, and we'll be right back. Oh, to prove the reality of psychokinesis, uh, this is something that I've been interested in, gosh, I don't know, for over 20 years, and uh, doing a little research and, and studying this, and actually attempting to do it myself, actually. Uh, and so it's very fascinating to me, absolutely blowing my mind tonight, everything that uh, Stephen Browdy and I are talking about. And I just wonder if you have ever tried, have you ever tried to move something with just your thoughts, have you ever tried the old pendulum experiment or anything like that? Uh, and what are your thoughts on this entire phenomena? Uh, we will be opening up the phone lines, oh, I don't know, after probably uh, the next break. And then I'm definitely going to be wanting to hear from all of you, uh, your examples, your thoughts, your questions when it comes to the phenomena of, of psychokinesis. What does this say? about the human mind. Uh, and welcome back to the program, Stephen. Um, so do tell me about this. Was the, Did you also go and personally investigate uh, Kai Muga? Uh, yes, I've been studying him since 2010. Mm. Um, he runs something called the Felix Experimental Group. <clears throat> and this was organized originally in around 2004, I think, um, and it originally started just with table-tipping kinds of phenomena and then morphed into more standard 19th-century-style mediumistic phenomena where Kai would go into a trance where he ostensibly lost his waking consciousness and, and he was, uh, under those conditions, supposed to be possessed by the spirit of the deceased parapsychologist, the German parapsychologist Hans Bender. And... When, in those cases, Kai would go into a curtained-off area called a cabinet, just as they did back in the late 19th century, and he would emerge from the cabinet as uh, Hans, and objects would happen all around the room. Objects, lights would be moving around the room, wraps and knockings on the wall and ceiling moving rapidly around the room. Objects would happen at a considerable distance from Kai, and then eventually this ectoplasmic phenomena began to uh, develop as well. And part of the problem with investigating this kind of stuff is that it occurs in darkness, and Kai doesn't permit infrared recording of what's going on. So the case is complicated, and it's further complicated by the fact that we know that Kai has cheated on occasion, and uh -oh. we discovered, yeah, this is a very best a case of mixed mediumship. 
my my take on all this is that Kai's table levitations, full table levitations, are probably genuine. I've experienced some really cool table levitations. I've even recorded one in infrared. Uh, he did let me do it on that one occasion. It's not the greatest video. You can see it online. The problem is that in the darkness, Kai's body blocked... Um, Kai moved his chair, he was uncomfortable, and he blocked a good view of the table, so you don't really see everything that's going on. But in 2013, after some promising preliminary work with Kai, I arranged for a series of experiments at the farmhouse near Salzburg, Austria, of my videographer. And we had a really great setup. We had very good controls in this case. Um, we had one room that was used for all seances, whether they were table seances or cabinet seances. And this room was kept... Well, first of all, we cleaned the room of all places where anything could be hidden. It was just a bare room. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it was kept padlocked when it wasn't in use. I had sole possession of the key to the room. No one knew where I kept it when it wasn't on my person. The windows and the interior shutters in the room, each had locks from the inside. And during the sessions, the room was kept padlocked from the inside, so no one could get in and out. Um, and all the objects that were brought into the room were examined very carefully. Before Kai's seance, where he was going to produce ectoplasm, I did a strip search of Kai, and I examined very carefully the clothes we put him in. I watched him with his hands raised as he walked from his room to uh, where the seance was. Um, I seated him in the cabinet. We then uh, patted down all the other people who went into the room. They were all co-experimenters, but we did it just for a precaution. Kai's wife was there, and a female member of my team did a strip search, separate strip search of her. Um, and I should say that before the seance began, Kai drank a large quantity of uh, iced black tea. That's relevant because the ectoplasm that he pulled from his mouth had no uh, hints of discoloration of any kind, which you would have expected. Right. So that answers, yeah, that answers one of my questions. Okay. Well, so we know, the, the reason this is complicated is that we know that Kai has purchased a lot of Halloween-style cobweb that looks a lot like some of the ectoplasm that he displayed, including some that he displayed to us, a glowing green ectoplasm. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how did he get it into the seance room? I think the regurgitation hypothesis, the idea that he stashed it in his gut, is probably not going to work because there was no odor, there was no discoloration. I mean, Kai had eaten, had eaten and drank tea before, shortly before all this. Yeah, it would have been discolored. It would have been pretty gross if that yes. was. But that was what I was thinking, so. Well, there's another hypothesis. Uh, we call it in parapsychology the ass hypothesis. Ah, uh, um, oh no, even grosser. <laughs> it, it is grosser, but there is a precedent for it. I mean, we do know that some fraudulent mediums of the past, in particular a Hungarian medium named Laszlo, uh, did, in fact, uh, stash things up his rectum. And the thing is, in the darkness, Kai moves around a great deal in the cabinet, and there's no way to know exactly what's going on. Is he retrieving something hidden in a condom up, up his ass? We don't know. 
Kai knows a lot about this. He, as a filmmaker himself, did several documentaries about heroin use in Frankfurt. And he knows that drug mules often stash uh, heroin that way. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I don't think... I've written about this at length in a paper in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. I don't think it's easy to explain all that we observed by supposing that Kai stashed the lights that we saw and all the ectoplasm that we saw in either his gut or his rectum. Mm -hmm. I don't think those hypotheses are easy to sustain. But the fact is, it's... Kai has made it more difficult by the fact that we know he's cheated with some other phenomena in seances I didn't supervise, so I haven't observed him cheating as far as I know. But it throws a cloud over everything. If Kai has learned one magic trick that we know about, who knows what other ones he may have learned about and was able to practice in darkness. Well, sure. It makes you think, well, if you've cheated once or twice, then investigation over. You know, that taints everything. It's not that simple. We know that other great mediums of the past have cheated when they could or when the phenomena weren't forthcoming because they often, like Kai, made their living doing this. And one of the strongest cases like that is the famous case of the turn of the 20th century medium, Eusapia Palladino, who even admitted she would cheat if given the chance. But she was studied by three really experienced investigators, two of whom were magicians in Naples under 11 seances in 1908. And produced around 500 documented phenomena under conditions that are really impeccable and convinced three hardened skeptics about psychokinesis into believers about Eusapia. I think those are among the cleanest experiments. Those are often as convincing as Crookes' experiment with Hume's accordion. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have a history of mixed mediumship that contains genuine and fraudulent phenomena. And I'm open to the fact that this may be the case with Kai. I think his table levitations are almost certainly genuine, and perhaps some of the object movements at a distance from Kai. I mean, I've sat next to Kai in darkness with my body draped all over his while phenomena occurred at a distance from him. Making sure that he's not using any kind of fishing line or anything like that to to produce this phenomenon, okay? But interestingly, his his hands and arms would would twitch, and sometimes his hands would clench mine uh, when the phenomena occurred. So it was associated with things going on in his body. I believe those phenomena, or at least some of them, were genuine. And... Unfortunately, this is just not a neat case, and Kai doesn't allow real serious testing under um, conditions that we really need to to improve upon the gold standard that we already have. So that's the the problem with with studying Kai. Hmm, I'm fascinated with the with the ectoplasm. Um, really, really am. Uh, did it always have that look of uh, the Halloween fake spider webs, or did it ever look like? fluid? Uh, Did it ever look like uh, that smoke or some sort of gas or anything like that? I haven't seen that. There have been some reports that there was a kind of wispy um, stuff beforehand. I know that there have been reports in the literature of the uh, ectoplasm beginning or ending in that form. Um, I haven't personally seen that. The stuff I've seen Kai pull from himself sometimes look more cloth-like than the synthetic kind of Halloween cobweb. 
the green, glowing green ectoplasm looked pretty synthetic that I saw in Austria. The stuff that I've seen Kai pull out of his mouth and that rests on the floor is more um, flexible. It's more cloth-like in, in appearance. Mm. And didn't you say that it would move on its own? Yeah, it seemed to. It seemed like it was being animated from within. It was almost as if it was breathing. What bothers me about it is that the phenomena would be the same virtually from one night to the next when Kai does his demonstrations for um, his paying customers. And Kai has told me on a number of occasions, especially when I confronted him with my knowledge of his cheating, he would say, well, you know, there's a difference between public demonstrations and scientific experiments, which is a kind of tacit concession that um, he doesn't feel like he has to be genuine for the public demonstrations. So it bothers me that it's virtually the same phenomenon night after night. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it look like a routine rather than the sort of spontaneously different sort of thing that we've seen from other well-investigated mediums. Right. And, you know, that's a performance on command. And rarely, rarely does the paranormal ever, as we've talked about, it just doesn't obey commands. Uh, like you said, you were trying to film Katie and uh, get evidence of of the gold leaf uh, spontaneously appearing on her. But any time you had the camera on her, it wouldn't do it. And then you pull the camera away, and there you go. I mean, this is how it is with haunting activity and just about every other, especially in cryptozoology. I mean, just about every story I ever hear. And I (laughs) saw it, and then I got my camera, and it was gone. You know, it's just like that all the time. Um and but if he's able to do this uh, on a nightly schedule, it does make a person a little bit suspicious. But how in the world do you get ectoplasm, whatever it is, whatever common material it's made out of, to move on its own? Okay, now I'm at a loss. Uh, if a person can do that, how do you? Well, I think magicians can do it if if they're allowed to set it up. Um... That's probably not hard. I mean, there may be thin threads that I wasn't able to see. Um, it's it's hard to know. I don't think that would impress a magician uh, because they would say, you know, give me the opportunity to set it up without adequate controls, and I can easily make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I've proposed tighter controls to Kai, which would make it much more compelling. I asked him if he would allow me to seal his hands into bo- into boxing gloves. That would mean it would be very difficult for him to retrieve anything from his mouth or from his rectum. Mm, or and, manipulate any kind of line or string or anything. Right. He did not agree to that control. Oh, oh. boy, you're right. It is complicated. Um and and difficult to just throw out the whole thing as an as a hoax from top to bottom. No, I don't want to because I've had very convincing table levitations with Kai. I saw him last October in Germany, and we were hoping to get better video than the video we got uh, in Austria. We did get a nice video of a table levitation under low light, um, but in Austria and back in Germany, the table would be off for twenty seconds or more swaying back and forth in midair to the rhythm of the music that was playing. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that is so cool. I mean, it, to me, it's, you know, it's the the great acts of spiritualism uh, from the late 19th century here in our time. And, and right. for that reason alone, it's intriguing. Uh, but I would be 
I would be very, very suspicious of, of anything he claims he can do or anything he's show. I, you know, I would be as critical as if I were watching a stage magician. You know, I'd be sitting there going, okay, now how is he doing that? Well, I think it's it's fair to ask that question, and it's especially fair since we know that Kai has cheated on occasion. Mm-hmm. And he's his own worst enemy in that respect. Uh, I've tried to help him by trying to document under the best conditions possible the table levitations to show that at least some of the phenomena are genuine. Um, in my most recent paper about Kai in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, I explain why our recent attempt last October in Germany was not altogether successful, but we had some really intriguing phenomena in any case. But I was hoping for better documentation, and that we didn't get. And at this point, I think Kai won't work with me anymore. Oh, uh, well, that's that's unfortunate. Um, well, you know, has there any been, been anybody else that you've done... Um, uh, investigations on that uh, were you weren't able to find out if they were cheating or weren't able to explain anything they could do uh, just well aside from Katie well I've investigated a number of ostensible PK subjects mm-hmm. um, one that I describe in my book the gold leaf lady is a guy named Dennis Lee uh, from California who was able to make large-scale object movements happen. Um, But the testing of Dennis, when I brought him to New York, was a very, very complicated affair. It was messed up by um, my benefactor who paid to bring Dennis to New York and who brought me there. He was pissed off at me because I was not impressed by a fraudulent medium he thought was great before. And so he tried to sabotage my investigation of Dennis. But I can tell you cool things that Dennis has done. When I first met him in San Francisco, I mean, Dennis, one of these people who just contacted me out of the blue saying, you know, I can do all these things. Uh, I'm a perfect subject for being tested because I can work under any kind of controls. He had a, an unfortunately naive estimate of his own psychic strength in that case because he was definitely undermined by the, my benefactor in New York. But... I met Dennis at a hotel in San Francisco, and we went into an unused conference room. And I know he liked to work with pendulum-like devices. He said he could make pendulums of any size move. And there was a big chandelier in the room. And I said, well, can you make the chandelier move? And it was on a stiff rod, so I wasn't very optimistic. And he said, no, but I think I can make the lights flicker. And he concentrated on the lights, and they would uh, flicker. And then he said, now I'll make it stop. And he made it stop. And then he said, I'll make them flicker again. And he did it back and forth and back and forth. Now, I thought that was pretty impressive. He didn't know I was going to take him into that room. He couldn't have prepared that room in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, how other ways? I mean, he he didn't have access to the light switch, I take it. Right. He had no idea I was going to ask him to do anything with the light. He had brought a little pendulum he wanted me to uh, watch him move, but we couldn't find a room that didn't have enough breezes to make that uh, uh, difficult to determine. Mm. Yeah, and the whole pendulum thing, especially if you're holding it in your hand, uh, then... Uh, oh, that's a different story altogether. Yeah, that I can't I can't buy. Uh, I have tried this experiment uh, so many times, and every single time, I know uh, it's just, it's my... It doesn't matter how still you try to be, even your heartbeat is going to make it move. Um, 
So that one's difficult unless it's hanging from something that you're not touching and there's no breeze and there's no zero movement whatsoever. And then you can make that thing just swing around wild. Not a little bit, but really make that thing move. Other than that, I'm not too sure. Uh, Was he able to do anything else? Um, Were you able to set up any other experiments? How was your friend able to sabotage the experiments? Oh, by just trying to make Dennis feel as uncomfortable as possible. (laughs) And uh, by telling him that he wasn't nearly as impressive as the guy I had already caught cheating. (laughs) Oh, so he just did a real number on Dennis's psyche. Dennis needed a lot of coffee in the morning, but he, uh, he was Dennis was staying at the home of this guy, and he wouldn't give Dennis coffee. I mean, so he did everything possible to uh, to make Dennis as unhappy as he could be about his current situation. Mm. The old "I'm going to make your life miserable," <laughs> and it works. It works. It absolutely works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dennis turned out to be more fragile psychologically than I think he, he realized. Uh, was he able to make uh, prove his psychokinetic abilities in any way other than the lights flickering? Not under the testing situations, but when we took him around, when my associates took him around to New York, they took him to um, the Metropolitan Museum where there was a, uh, an interesting display of... Um, old costumes on uh, mannequins. Mm-hmm. And Dennis, at a distance, was making the, this heavy clothing on the, in the costumes waving wildly in the, in the breeze and was disturbing the guards. But, <laughs> you know, so there are all these anecdotal reports of Dennis doing very great things, but under the test situations, you know, it's, it's very easy to tighten up, and he did. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I can understand that. When you, I can too. Yeah, when you know that you're being harshly judged, your performance is going to suffer. I don't care what you're trying to do. Um, I can certainly understand that. Well, There was a, a documentary made a number of years ago by the BBC. It was shown as a NOVA program called The Case for ESP. And there was this very glib skeptic, C.E.M. Hansel, who said, well, it ought to be easy to tell if somebody has telepathy. Just, they just have to tell me what I'm thinking. And I'm so sorry that the guy who was his interlocutor for that interview didn't say to him, oh, really, Professor Hansel, well, perhaps you'd like to demonstrate an erection for us. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> you, can be, you can be sure that Hansel, if, when he failed, wouldn't agree to the conclusion that he simply was unable to get it up. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, Stephen. Oh, you cracked me up. Uh, yeah, it's a two-way street, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, something that I do find very interesting about your work is that you've got this link. And I don't know, I want to ask you how you draw this link between multiple personality uh, disorder and... Uh. The afterlife, or evidence of the afterlife. How do you link those two together? Well, it's a good question. The, the, the link, I think, is pretty straightforward. If you look at people who have multiple personalities, what's now called associative identity disorder, um, you see that, superficially at least, what they're doing looks a lot like what you see in cases of mediumship, where uh, the the same person takes on different facial personality characteristics and so on. 
And while I don't think it's easy to just say that that's all that's going on in cases of mediumship, it shows why it's not just an, an academic or theoretical question that has no teeth to it. So I figured if I was, I knew at some point I wanted to write a book on uh, life after death, especially when I became more chronologically challenged. And I knew that there was this at least superficial similarity between the phenomena of multiple personality and the phenomena of mental mediumship. So I figured it would be irresponsible of me to write on survival of death without knowing a great deal about the history of dissociation and psychiatry and hypnosis. And basically, that's the reason for looking into it. There are some very dramatic similarities between what you see in um, multiple personality and mediumship. All right. Uh, well, making that connection, that's a, that's a little bit different than what I was thinking. So then there, that does make sense. Um, mediumship is something I have always been skeptical of. Anybody who can act a little bit can say, I'm channeling the spirit of your father, and he says it's all going to be okay. I mean, I just ah, have a hard time with all of that. So multiple personality disorder, sure. That could be an explanation for it. Uh, we got to take. When we come back. I'll give you a good example. Oh, okay, great, great. Uh, I'll look forward to that. We got to take a break right now. Stephen Browdy is my guest, and we're discussing basically the evidence of psychokinesis. I'm Heather Wade. We'll be right back. And if you don't know, you can call the program via Skype. If you're in North America and you have Skype open on your device, just type in MITD11, and you can call the program that way. If you're in any other corner of the globe, you can call us by just typing into the Skype search bar, MITD21, and if you're using a headset with a microphone, you'll sound like you're sitting here with us. And if you have ever seen evidence of psychokinesis, you're welcome to call. Uh, if you just have a question based on anything we've discussed so far, uh, Stephen Browdy and myself, you're welcome to call. And you know what? I've heard a lot tonight that just absolutely blows the mind, blows one's mind. And... Uh, yeah. You've got to have questions by now. If you don't, I don't know that you're paying attention. Anyhow, the phone lines are open. All right. I do have a couple more questions for Stephen, um, and then we'll start taking your calls. So what a night, right? Um, thank you again, and uh, welcome back to the program. So you said you had a, a funny story or example about multiple personality disorder and, and linking that to mediumship? Yes. The, uh, Stanford psychologist David Spiegel um, was approached by a TV anchor woman in San Francisco. And she said, you know, we have all these mediums or channels out here on the West Coast. Some of them have to be legitimate. And Spiegel said, show me anybody who's highly hypnotizable, and I can turn that person into a channel. And so the anchor woman volunteered her cameraman, and Spiegel hypnotized him. This is all on film. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, the cameraman's affect changed completely, and he started talking in this artificial way and started – he claimed he was some sort of uh, intergalactic entity and started spouting all these New Age platitudes. You know, he said something like, greetings, friends, my name is Zantac, or whatever it was, you know. And, <laughs> From Zeta Reticuli, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, well, that doesn't show that – you can explain away all me cases of mediumship that way. It shows why it's not just an academic exercise to consider the possibility that at least some cases may have more in common with a dissociative disorder 
than anything else. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I was not expecting that, but that link does make sense. Um, what about uh, what about just evidence of the afterlife? Are you skeptical of that, or what are your thoughts on that? Like near death experiences, I don't know, you, electronic voice phenomena, these sort of things. Well, not all um, types of evidence are on a par. I wrote a book about this called Immortal Remains. Um, let's just back up for a second. I mean, I would say that a case suggests life after death when two conditions are fulfilled. First of all, some living person has to show knowledge or abilities that are closely associated or uniquely associated with a deceased person. And secondly, we need to have good reason to believe that this knowledge wasn't obtained or the abilities weren't developed by ordinary means. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, um, how do we explain? So, consider just in the abstract, how do we explain cases suggesting survival? Well, first of all, there are what I'd call the usual suspects. You know, these would be things like mistakes in observation or mistakes in reporting or fraud or hidden memories. The best cases can't be explained away in terms of the usual suspects. That's why they're the best cases. Then you've got unusual suspects. And here we're dealing with things like rare or abnormal processes like dissociation and latent creative capacities, like the sort of thing you might see in multiple personality with a little psychic ability thrown in that would look like um, evidence of survival. Mm-hmm. And then the hardest one to get rid of is what's often called super psi or living agent psi, where living people are using um, their own psychic abilities to simulate evidence of survival. Do you understand? Am I making this clear? Well, I want you to explain that a little bit. How, yeah, how me, do you mean? What do you mean there? Let me give you an example. Suppose a medium says to you, um, I'm in touch with your Uncle Harry, and Uncle Harry wants you to know uh, that he's glad you like your new job. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay. Now, the question is, what's going on there? Um, no matter what's happening, there's some psychic functioning involved, but is it psychic functioning among the living or among the deceased? If the media, How does the medium know what Uncle Harry is thinking? That has to be telepathy. Telepathy is just mind-to-mind communication. Mm, and how does the, the medium how does Uncle know? Uncle Harry know what I'm thinking? Right, and right? how does the medium know that the querent has a new job? Uh, uh, right, exactly. So whether it's Psi, telepathy on the part of Uncle Harry or on the part of the medium, it's very hard to figure out, but there's some psychic functioning going on. But it's almost impossible to determine whose it is. And if the information later gets verified, then the knowledge is there for somebody living or dead to access. So if Uncle, if a medium says, Uncle Harry wants you to know that he has a secret will that's in a secret compartment in his desk. And it turns out that's true. There is a case actually a lot like this. And then you discover the, the will. If the information is verifiable, then it's there for the living to access by uh, remote viewing or clairvoyance. I see. And not necessarily from the dead. From the deceased, right. So it's it's almost impossible to have a scientifically con- conclusive experiment where you can rule out living agent psychic functioning. Mm-hmm. And so when people ask me what I think about this, I say, in my gut, I'm 
uh, depending on the day you ask me. <laughs> I'm, I think there's evidence that's at least psychologically persuasive or somewhat coercive of survival of bodily death, but there is no slam dunk scientific case for it. Yeah, well, this is exactly why I have a hard time with the whole subject of mediumship. Uh, flatly, I don't believe in it. I just don't. You would think someone immersed in the paranormal uh, would would believe it. I'm still waiting for someone to give me irrefutable proof, uh, but there isn't any because there's so many other explanations for it. You know that I just I just have a hard time with the whole thing. I really do. And I have so many more questions for you, um, but uh, let's take some calls. What do you say? Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let us see what awaits us here on the first time caller line. You're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Well, hello. Hello. Wow, I got through. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been holding for over an hour. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was listening, so it was pretty cool. So I'm going to be real quick about this. Um, Earlier, before you had Mr. Browdy on, you were talking about the Dakota Sioux and trying to stop this pipeline. I'm Native American, and I live in Alaska, and we stand behind our brothers down there because we're trying to stop a a logging project up here. Now, I can tie together Mr. Brody and the Natives along with your earlier question of, is there a compromise? Oh, please do. I am all ears. All right, I got the compromise. Let's get rid of Congress. Let's get rid of Senate. Let's get rid of the presidency. Let's get rid of these two knuckleheads that are running for the office. And let's give the country back to its rightful owners in the first place, the Native Americans. (laughs) Let's also talk about one other thing. You know, and, and I'm not saying anything wrong. Sorry, my heater just kicked on. I'm I'm not saying that that horrible things haven't happened throughout the past, but one of the the biggest instances of genocide happened right here in America, where millions of my people were killed. And I'm going to use the term Anglo's just for you know the ones that came over on the boats and took our land and killed us by the millions, and that's never talked about. Well, those are my people too, sir. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. I wasn't you know. Yeah, I meant nothing personal by it. But well, you know, I, I know, mean, I know, but I'm especially conflicted because I'm Choctaw and I'm English. So you know, I got a war inside of me every day. <laughs> well, I, I feel you because I'm Blackfoot and Viking. So figure that one out. Exactly, exactly. So how do you tie that in to Stephen Browdy and what we've been talking about all night? Okay, so then you talk started talking about PK and about you know, spirituality and all of this. Well, I, one of the things Mr. Browdy said earlier was uh, about people that are enlightened and in the modern world versus people that are not so modern. And I think you might have that backwards, Mr. Browdy. I feel that modern man has not become enlightened. I feel that modern man has become more muddled by technology and its quest for knowledge that he has forgotten one basic thing. Ancient people had knowledge that far exceeds ours. But that's actually what I was saying. Yeah, we're all connected, and we're all connected by one, and we like to call it the Great Spirit, but there's an energy. And I think that's where, if, if, if you were to look more at ancient civilizations and their beliefs that, I don't think the term enlightened modern man would be relevant anymore. I I think we've lost a lot of our intelligence. 
Mm, no, I well, was being ironic when I said enlightened. So ah, I think we're, okay. we're on the same page. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. But I mean, it, 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 I mean, you can see like, you know, my people, we believe in the great spirit. We believe that we're all connected. I mean, everything. And I hate to use a Star Wars pun, but, you know, the force is with us. We just have to tap it. Well, sure. I'm sure that is a belief that uh, crosses many cultures. Uh, yeah, I do believe. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I appreciate your input and your thoughts. Thank you very much for the call. Um, you know, I've always sort of wondered, and, and and this does happen. You see it kind of happening occasionally. But we are starting, science is starting to confirm <clears throat> Some of the things that ancient people have always known, and the first example of that that comes to mind is the mass consciousness experiments, uh, the the Princeton eggs, um, because they the ancients have always said, well, of course we're all connected, and and of course your the power of the mind is uh, significant, and then. Right. Here we are in modern times, and we run these experiments, and we find out, oh, wow, what they said is probably true. Um, and so I always wonder when or how long it's going to take for science to catch up with the paranormal and give us rational scientific explanations for things we don't understand today. Do you think that time will ever come, Stephen? Well, I'm pretty jaded, so I would have to say certainly not in what's left of my lifetime. <laughs> Well, I find your jaded approach um, refreshing. I kind of like it. It doesn't. It hasn't changed much in in over 150 years that I've been studying carefully. So uh, it's hard to be terribly optimistic about it happening anytime soon. Hmm. Well, I'll continue hoping, and we'll see. <laughs> well, I hope too. Uh, let's go to line one. You're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hello, uh, am I on? You are. Oh, good. Uh, I'm Joe, and I'm calling from uh, Route 66 in Arizona. I was a radioman and uh, cryptographer in the Navy for more than 10 years, and I tend to uh, see ancient monuments in terms of antennas. And uh, what I'm talking about here is in most ancient times, they were used as uh, transmitters for the vibrations and frequencies of the human body as they were actually sending out calls. It depends on... uh, First of all, you have to look at the uh, spirals of less gravity than normal on the face of the Earth. The first one I want to mention is at Giza in Egypt. It goes right through the peaks of the main three pyramids there, and it caused the uh, area to become a plateau. And over here in this hemisphere, it begins in uh, Corkscrew, Florida, marsh. And as it goes larger, it's very interesting because it goes right over Coral Castle and it goes over the Florida Keys, which caused uh, the Florida Keys to form in the first place. Now, the technology of it is uh, in the uh, sarcophagus in the king's chamber where uh, they used to fill it up with uh, salt water so a body could be immersed in it. It's a sensory deprivation tank. And uh, after three days, the pineal gland will open in darkness. And this is the, an example of the internal call. This is uh, subconscious. Uh, the mind has no control over it. However, uh, if you want to see uh, uh, evidences of the uh, external or conscious call, go to Chaco Canyon in uh, northwest New Mexico, where there are piles and piles and piles of broken pottery. What they were doing was they were making pots there, ensconcing their own vibes within the pots, 
and then breaking them on sunrise of tea days. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, so could I please give my website out? No, uh, I was hoping that you'd have a question for Mr. Stephen Browdy. I mean, we've been holding on this discussion all night long, and uh, that sounded like it had nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, so we'll continue to line two. You're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hello. I'm on there. You are, sir. Hello. Hello. Uh, hello. Welcome, Stephen. Uh, uh, listener to uh, Midnight in the Desert. And, uh, thank you, Heather, for having me on the show, too. Sure. I'm to your show. Uh, most of your episodes here tonight. Are you on speakerphone, sir? I was watching the Cubs watch the World Series. I was. I, I shut down. Thank you, because you're going to sound a whole lot better. Yeah. You were cutting in and out I'm on so speakerphone. Thank you. Thank you much. I'm and so, uh, so go on. What did you want to say? Uh, welcome, the guest, uh, to the show. I know you, this show has a lot of special guests, and I appreciate listening to them. I learn a lot, and I'm um, delighted to have Steve on the show. Uh, Stephen, um, most of these uh, investigations you've been doing or uh, experiments, uh seem to be like a gimmick. I mean, they're pretty low-level effects, moving, shaking, notes being played, and stuff like that. And uh, I was wondering, um, do you feel that there is a level of authority uh, present uh, when there's a spilling of blood and it has a bearing on the results displayed in the level of tests that are performed? Wait, I'm, I'm not sure I got that. Would you ask that again, please? Yeah, I'm a little bit lost also. What was the question? Do you feel that the level of response on your investigations are greater when there's blood spilled? An example of that would be what? Oh, like nine eleven, um, something. Like oh, that, oh, some, oh, oh, okay, sure. Well, thank you for clarifying. Um, interesting, Stephen. Well, I got a story for him if he's if I got any time. Well, let me first try to address your question. I mean, sure. there's no institutional review board that would allow uh, experimentation under the conditions that involve the spilling of blood. So um, you can't really do experiments like that. But you're talking about a kind of spontaneous phenomenon which might evoke uh, a powerful response. And the only thing I would have to say about that would be that this might give us a clue as to how psychic abilities function in daily life away from experimentation. But experimentation by its very nature is already a little bit artificial. So um, it's not at all surprising to me that the phenomena that I've studied are uh, relatively low level, as you put it. Well, I wonder if this is why uh, psychics are able to hone in on... Uh on murders and kidnappings and this sort of ah, thing. Good um, point. Well, I mean, it's just, it's a really, he brought up something really interesting to, to think about, you know, um, when one human kills another, um, that's a really, that's a very powerful thing. And it would cause a reverberation throughout our consciousness, whether we realize it or not, and maybe psychics are able to tune into that and pick up on that because it's as painful as it is. Uh, in, in magic, they say, uh, the best way to increase your power is to take another life, and that's black magic. Um, right. And uh, I've 
of course, never, ever done that and never will. Um, there's a whole other camp of magic practice that says, well, you shouldn't have to do that because if you do, you're cheating. But in the case of investigating murders and in the case uh, like he brought up of 9-11, um, then that does give us something interesting to think about. If you take a life or if a life is taken, does that make it easier somehow for a psychic to pick up on? I'm not sure that it does, because when you think about the really good remote viewers like Joe McMonagall and Pat Price and some others, um, they were doing phenomenal sorts of things under um, much more mundane sorts of conditions, you know, reading documents and sealed containers at uh, Soviet sites and things of that sort. So um, really first-rate psychic functioning doesn't seem necessarily to be facilitated by that, depending on the person. It could have to do with a, a very ordinary kinds of things, too, I think. All right. Well, worth thinking about at least, and a very good question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sir, You that was not all you had. You said you had something else there. Yeah, I've never been into black magic or anything like that. I've never witch or anything, but uh, I've never been to any of these seances or anything like that or any of these experiments you're talking about. But uh, I did go to Christian Academy and, uh, in the 80s, 1982 to 1984. And during those course of those days, uh, I was on my way to chapel, and um, there's a girl poking her head out the door, and she's waving to somebody behind me approaching chapel. It's like a big church. And uh, an old white church, and well, I was walking towards it, and this girl's waving to somebody behind me. She's like, hey, Todd. And I just remembered that there was a new kid in school. His name was Todd Beamer. And he was the gentleman on Flight 93 that uh, perished in uh, Pennsylvania, the hero there. And I was on my way to chapel, and I, I turned to check and see if this is the new kid, you know. And I asked him, when I turned to him, I asked him, are you Todd Beamer? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I felt embarrassed for asking. I'm like, I'm sorry, Todd. And I just turned to the chapel and I walking towards the chapel. And then all of a sudden, I got two words, like, beamed to the top of my head. And it was terrorist and hero. And this is 1982, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and I say to myself, am I supposed to, because I'm getting a premonition feeling, am I supposed to tell him? And, like, I got this yes answer in my head. And I'm like, okay. So, like, I stop him. And I'm like, hey, listen, Todd, I get premonitions all the time. I said, normally it's it's about me, but this seems to be about you. And it, they always come true. And I said, the two words I got for you are, I said, first off, is are you going to the military? Is your dad in the military or something? Because I'm trying to put hero together. And he's like, no, I'm going to play rugby in college. And I'm like, okay. I said, well, Todd, um, I don't know about this, but, like, the, the two words I have for you are terrorist and hero, and I'm trying to get a location in time. Usually I'd get that, and I'm, I'm only getting it's Pennsylvania, and I don't see how there could be terrorists in Pennsylvania, I told him. And I said, but, Todd, I, I don't know if you live or die, and I, I started thinking about it, and he's going to die. So, like I said, Todd, when the time comes, just say let's roll, because, like, I feel like this is really big, and the whole country's going to be behind you on this. And I just looked at him. He didn't have a, a look on his face or anything. He didn't say anything. He was just motionless. So I set my hand on his shoulder. And I said, okay, Todd, let's just go on into chapel. And it was, you know, years later, 9-11, I heard the story about him being on that flight. And it just, like, sends chills to me still. And I was just curious. Like, most of these big events seem to have some sort of connection to blood, you know, <laughs> and the history. Mm -hmm. And I've had a few of these events in my life. 
this isn't the only major event I've been involved in. And it's like, I don't know why I keep getting these connections, you know, to major events that happen like that. And that's where my connection is with this. And I'm sorry if it doesn't have anything to do with you, but I know you're a psychologist. I was just wondering if you're curious if you had any bigger stories, just notes and things vibrating and, you know, skeptical things like that. Well, I do have something to say about that. I often wonder, you know, people often say precognitive experiences and telepathic experiences have to do with uh, negative or painful events. But it may also be that more mundane sorts of interactions are occurring all the time, but don't stand out for us because they're not so arresting. So I don't know that it's true that these events always occur in connection with blood or other sorts of dramatic or negative uh, occurrences. It may be that um, they're occurring all the time, but don't command our attention for one reason or another. In little ways, like, uh, yes. I know if I go to the store right now, I'm going to probably get in a fender bender and you go anyway and you get in a little minor wreck or things like that probably happen all the time we just don't put as much weight on it uh, as we do to these larger events uh well i appreciate the call very very much uh and here we are we got to take another break the night's flying by uh with Stephen browdy and look the phone lines are open <clears throat> you're welcome to call in and join the conversation um if you have experience this phenomena i especially want to hear from you have you ever experienced psychokinesis yourself well i definitely want to hear from you and even if you just have thoughts on it well i want to hear from you also we'll be right back my guest this evening is stephen browdy and we're talking about various cases of psychokinesis the powers of the mind mediumship i mean this conversation's got all all sorts of aspects like that. Um, really interesting, though, to talk about this with someone as jaded as Stephen is. I actually find that a very refreshing approach to the subject, actually. Uh, and I'd like to welcome him back to the program. Uh, how you doing over there, Stephen? It's getting late. Hang in, hang in there. <laughs> well, you know, it is now exactly about, well, almost two minutes past midnight, on this program, that's when things really start to get interesting, especially with the phone lines being open. Um, so I have to ask you, though, I've been wanting to ask you this all night. Um, your latest book is called Crimes of Reason, and I think that is a, a really cool title on mind, nature, and the paranormal. Why'd you call it Crimes of Reason? Well, for two reasons. Uh, it has a dual meaning. One of them is that I'm often accused of committing crimes of reason by uh, virtue of taking some of the stands I've taken philosophically and, of course, for uh, bothering to study the paranormal in the first place. And the other meaning has to do with the very serious philosophical mistakes that lie behind a great deal of theorizing in the sciences. And the book itself addresses... Um, both those meanings, why I think it's defensible and important to study the paranormal, and why I think a lot of science is just wrong-footed right from the beginning. Hmm. Uh, why combined mind, nature, and the paranormal? Well, the book deals with uh, a number of related topics. About uh, One of them is how memories occur. And I try to argue against the idea that memories are 
explained in terms of memory traces or engrams in the brain. I think that's a deeply philosophically confused uh, theory. And I show how it's related to similar mistakes made in Rupert Sheldrake's theory of morphogenetic uh, resonance and how mechanistic thinking pollutes a great deal of our scientific theorizing and is actually not taking us forward at all in our understanding of how the mind works, how nature works. And that connects with uh, various theories of the paranormal. Mm. Well, interesting. And then what kind of thinking, if mechanistic thinking is taking us the wrong way, what kind of thinking would take us the right way? <laughs> um you realize these are not easy questions to answer quickly. I think that's why I ask them. <laughs> you know, scientists, most scientists assume that if we want to understand a phenomenon, uh, we have to break it down into lower-level processes and explain it the same way, roughly, that we explain heat uh, in terms of molecular motion. So most scientists assume that um, you can't break down phenomena forever into lower level processes that sooner or later you're going to have to come to some phenomena that are fundamental that are rock bottom that are primitive and when we get to that level uh, we say that's just the way the universe works and nothing at a lower level explains how that's simply a basic fact of regularity of nature now that's okay i think that's a perfectly reasonable scientific assumption but what most scientists assume in addition is that wherever that those primitive phenomena occur, they always occur at the level of the very small, you know, like the atomic level, the subatomic level, the biochemical level, something like that. And never at the surface, at the observable level, like the level of behavior. And I think that's a deeply mistaken view. And in fact, I would say that certain psychological phenomena are rock bottom already, that nothing at a lower level explains how they occur. But if that's the case, then most of what passes for uh, science and the cognitive sciences is completely wrong-headed. And so I would say that a lot of parapsychological theorizing, a lot of psychological theorizing, and a lot of theorizing in the life sciences has to start all over again and look for uh, basic phenomena, basic regularities occurring already at the observable level. Mm. Well, you know, at least you're... At least you're not, um, how do I say, at least you're not just, it's a little difficult, yes, to wrap my mind around all of that, but starting over, yeah. Well, it's a deep philosophical issue in 30 seconds, you know. Well, it (laughs) is, and, you know, I'll ask these big questions, but even if you don't have uh, the ultimate answer right away, I'm, you know, interested in just talking about it. Um, But do you think we ever will get out of our own way? and try to actually come at some answers for some of this unexplainable phenomena. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. We're in our own way and uh, somehow have to get out of our own way to to answer these big questions. Well, I may be jaded, but I'm not hopeless. I mean, you know, I think human beings have progressed over the centuries. I don't think these things happen quickly. And what it's going to take to help us to turn the corner, I can't say. But, uh, you know, maybe it'll come sooner than I expect. But uh, uh, I think these changes uh, take a long time. And most scientific revolutions take a long time. 
Mm. And I don't know, you know, I yeah, I don't know what to say about when what the timetable is for this. Yeah, we will never know until it happens. And uh, until then, there's going to be a lot of uh, theories being, <laughs> you know, kicked back and forth a lot like a ping pong ball. It'll just be, you know, debates, arguments, proof. And then that proof is disproven, and on and on and on it goes. Uh, but hey, that well, makes you know, things interesting. We don't even understand what human abilities are, and yet we we study psychic phenomena and other f- phenomena in psychology as if we have a clear grasp of what's going on in some of the most interesting abnormal cases. We don't understand prodigies. We don't understand what used to be called idiot savants, or just savants. I mean, savants are terribly interesting because they have abilities that seem impossible given their other cognitive or physical deficits. There are, there's a famous musical savant who's spastic until he sits down to play the piano. There are calculating savants who can factor any number you give to them, but who can't count the change in their pocket. (laughs) There's another savant who um, can barely care for himself, but he can repair any mechanical device you put in front of him. So we don't understand how these things happen. And until we understand that, until we understand what normal human abilities are, um, it's hard to see how we could possibly make progress in parapsychology. Mm, Agreed. Agreed. Uh, We started off this conversation with, uh, hey, we don't really understand human consciousness. We don't understand what causes. Uh, We know that between synapses, there's a spark, but we don't know what that spark is. Yet, and until we do, uh, we won't be able to make any progress. Um, And I find that really interesting because look at everything we have figured out. Look at all the technology that we have invented. Look at this highly civilized uh, culture we have. And yet we don't even know where our own thoughts come from. It's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, and You're not going to get an argument from me. (laughs) And I find I just find it interesting. It's it's an interesting state of affairs uh, for sure. Uh, let's go to North American Skype, and you're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show, Russell's Heather. This is Dale, keeping it weird down in Austin Whoa. on the fringe. Good to hear from you. And how's the group tonight? Uh we're uh, we're having a good time tonight. That for some reason it's it's a little more uh, free flowing and and humorous than the last couple last couple shows so yeah good night (laughs) all right well what's on your mind i'm sure you have uh some questions for steven yes professor um i'm trying to save the phenomena (laughs) so I, i i had a theory about paranormal activity that i wanted to run by you because you've got you know you've been actively studying it um it, the basis of my theory is that if if some supernatural um, critter wants to do something in the real world, it, it has to actually manifest real world physical forces to be able to do it. In other words, if it if it wants to throw a ball across the room, it has to actually exert you know mechanical force of some sort on that ball to bring it up in the air and then to accelerate it across the room. Um, so then, as a as a corollary of that, then the idea that um, if you wanted to oppose um, a supernatural critter of some sort, then you could do it in the real world at the point where it's 
will actually manifest. So, for instance, if the, something was shining a light in your eyes, no matter where that light came from, if you stuck a mirror in front of you, that would tend to deflect the, the light. D- does that make any sense? What, what do you think? I'm, I'm a little confused here. First of all, I don't know why we need to talk about supernatural critters. What if we just talk about somebody trying to do a little humdrum psychokinesis? Sounds good. I mean, uh, I don't know that that's the only point at which psychokinesis can be um, deflected. It seems to me it could be deflected at any number of points along the causal chain. But the the problem with this is that we don't know what the causal chain is like. We don't know whether, um, you know, we we often tend to think about psychic abilities as if they're like certain kinds of normal abilities that um, work on a kind of feedback mechanism. We We tend to assume that psychokinesis works in the way that riding a bike or steering a car works that, you know, we adjust our steering of the car based on the kind of feedback we're getting from the direction of the car. Um, but it may be that psychokinesis doesn't work that way. It may be more like the way a magic wand works where, um, all that's required is a clearing in the causal thicket as it were, and a will for something to happen. And then it just does. And, you know, sometimes magic wands sputter and fail, but it may be that there's no real process to it. It may be just um, there may be no causal chain to speak of. Is that making any sense to you? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm just I'm 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 still trying to save physics. (laughs) So so I would prefer a solution uh, where physics still worked. And it was just that the the supernatural like telekinesis had to actually generate real physical force instead of a a woo woo force. Um, So anyway, thanks for addressing my question. I appreciate it. Sure. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think what we're talking about defies physics. I think it's an aspect of physics we just don't yet understand. Uh, we, we haven't been able to explain this to ourselves. Um, well, these are natural phenomena. It may just be an aspect of nature whose regularities we haven't uh, figured out yet. Exactly right. Yes, exactly right. Whitley Strieber and Professor Jeffrey uh, Kripal wrote a book, uh, it was released last year, called The Supernatural. And, and this is their theory that, you know, look, we just live in a very fantastic and strange world. All this phenomena is natural. We just don't understand it yet. We can't explain it yet. That's all it is. And they included included every kind of paranormal phenomena. um, And that was their argument. I I say that was one of the the best books to come out and one of the best theories um, because I think that all of that is true. I think we do live in a very fantastic and incredible world. And that's what makes it so interesting to live here in the first place. uh, I agree. Is that there are things that we just can't answer, things that we just can't explain. When something like that happens, the rare occasion that it happens. By the way, has anything like that ever happened to you? Have you ever experience something paranormal yourself? I mean, aside from your investigation into psychokinesis, have you ever tried to? I've been tested for PK. I'm not sure that this is where my particular gifts lie. 
Um, although I'll tell you, I've often thought that when writing music and sometimes when playing piano, um, it doesn't seem like it's coming from me. Mm, now that is pretty interesting. Um, I, um, I play guitar. Well, haven't <laughs> in months because I've been working on the show. But, um, you know, <laughs> when, when you do get in that uh, sort of jamming phase, right, where you're just kind of letting it fly. And sometimes I would wonder, where in the world is this even coming from? I don't know what is moving my fingers. I don't know where this is coming from, but it sure sounds good. And it does it's, feel like it's coming from outside yeah. of you. It's it's like that, and I think for me it makes a difference that I'm getting out of my analytical head. I don't think that's, you know, my philosophical head is has got its virtues, but it, it's limiting in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Uh, to line one, you're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Uh, hello, brother. Hello, Stephen. How are you guys? Okay. Having a good night. Okay. Yourself? Good, good. Uh, myself, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the show, and, and uh, I'm digging the, uh, the topic. Uh you know, I, was, I wanted to try to, you know, say something uh, about what Collis said earlier. I mean, you know, I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth, but he said something about, uh, you know, he 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 has been in occupation. He was in the Navy, and uh, he 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 saw things in the terms of satellites and and such as 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 pyramids. You know, working with uh, acoustics and vibrations to, to transmit for human benefits or not human benefits, but for their people's benefits. Uh, what I you know what I was thinking that he was trying to say was that there was some sort of a, a belief in, 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 a, in a very realistic uh, application and a mechanic that was very much able to uh, uh, allow those people to, to, to utilize these, these mechanics to, whereas we today would see it as, as let's say, you know, a pair of science. And, and, and what, what I think he was trying to say is, is was that it's, it's well in practice and it's well informed to the, that, that, that civilization and that, and that practice. And, so I mean, it, it brought me to the thought that it's is it's, it's an ancient knowledge, but more than it being a knowledge or so informative that it is moreover a practice, and and possibly passed down. And 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 with that possibility of it being practiced, still it's, it creates this homogeny. You know, it, it creates and it, and this this belief, this thought process, which forms things such as factions and churches and and, and fraternities and whatnot. Uh, and, and and that brings us to why it is why low level experiments are important because if if it's well in practice but it's not known to a, a wider base, then you need those low level quote unquote low level tests and low level results so that you can you know inform your your own uh, basis. Uh, so it's important for these low level tests and you know and I totally dig uh, um, the the guess's techniques. Uh, I appreciate it you know and I, I believe we can learn a lot. But my question is: Is if these things are, are you know, on a subject level, if if they're a, a disorder of the subject, uh, and it possibly becomes, uh, you know, within the means of, of socializing, that uh, that it then becomes uh, more than a, a, a subjective disorder, but then it becomes object, like a, a knowledge base. Would that be enough? Uh, do you think that the the guests think that that would be enough for? Uh, our society to, to, you know, cause a, a dystopia. Wow, I'm not sure I got that. I'm well, not I mean, sure well, either. Can you simplify it, uh, break yeah, it down yeah. well, to well, one well, simple well, sentence question? Yes, of course, uh, to simplify, if, um, if, 
it's just studying a subject and, and you know, he, he makes these claims, oh, you know, I had these gifts and whatnot. And, and you know, you run your test and you find out that, oh, you know, maybe maybe he really does believe in his, his, his talents. But I wouldn't say that is 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 enough to call him gifted or, or or has the talent to transmit, but possibly he just has a, a disorder. And, you know, if, if that person did end up having some sort of a mental disorder, you know, he would still practice, you know, and, and, and he would try to find it within the means uh, to, to say that it was, uh, uh, you know, his own individual gift. And, and then what, if he went on to practice those gifts, would he be able to cause harm, enough harm to create a stress, uh, to create a function where it, you know, it just messes people up around him? And would that be enough for society to call that, you know, like I said, a dystopia? Is mm. that a danger? I think, I think we were talking about this earlier. Uh, I think I'm understanding what you're saying in that uh, if, if, if we could identify psychokinesis and we could confirm that it exists you know what kind of disruptions would that cause to society uh, we were talking about that earlier Stephen. i think that's well, what he's getting at if that's the question i think it's hard to know what would come from that i mean there are societies you know the so-called primitive ones where what we would call psychokinetic effects are accepted as a uh, a way of life but those are often societies where people take for granted that we can put hexes on one another, where we can erect psychic defenses against one another, um, where we have to consider things like the evil eye and uh, this expanded range of connections, both positive and negative, that we can exert upon one another. So it would, if this was accepted on, widely on a societal level in more industrialized nations, it would, I think, radically change the way we think about our neighbors, and maybe it would get us to be nicer to one another, even while at the same time uh, accepting that we could do harm to one another psychically. Mm. Yeah, it would change things, that's for sure. But it would have to be irrefutable proof, uh, because, look, I mean, we've got people claiming to be black magicians, we've got Satanists, we've got every color of every kind of uh, person out there experimenting with the power of their mind, and yet it's still in woo-woo territory, you know? You could have a black satanist magician living right next door to you and i don't know how many people would actually believe they could cause us harm well even if we knew that pk was genuine that doesn't make it any easier to know whether a particular person actually has the ability so um there would still be a lot of uncertainty uh spread throughout the uh, society even if we accepted pk scientifically Mm, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it would cause a dystopia unless we discovered that every living person suddenly has the ability to start fires with their mind. And then we're going to look into we're going to be having a problem. <laughs> I think we'd also have to figure out whether we have a dystopia right now. Well, and there's a bigger question. I think uh, based on the presidential election, we just might. It doesn't matter who gets elected at this point. I think people are going to be uh, angry and that would cause enough problems For all sure. on its own. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
Yeah, that question really twisted up my mind, but I still appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Uh, We'll go to, we may have to hold this caller over the break because we do have a break coming up here soon. But line three, you're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hello, Heather. Well, good evening. (laughs) It's an interesting uh, show. Um, I have a a little story from um, seventh grade, 12 years old. Yeah, seventh grade. (laughs) We had a... Um, teacher who uh, he was unusual, and he used to have a. a he, one day he had he, he demonstrated something to us. He said he took we took the heaviest um, kid in the class, and he probably weighed 150, 160 pounds. You know, for 12 year olds, that's pretty heavy. Um, and what he did was he put three desks together, had him lay down on it, and he had six of us, three on each side take one thing, our index finger, and put it under this kid. One, you know, the shoulders, the hips, and the ankles. And then he had us recite this little man- mantra. And uh, this 150-pound kid sort of, and, oh, and he told us, now I want you to lift up just a little bit, not real hard, but just lift up a little bit on him. And then we recited this mantra, and this kid floated up off the, off the tables. And we did this more than once, and he would never let us, um, you know, um, bring the kid up more than a couple of inches um, because gee, as soon as you quit reciting the mantra, um, the kid gets heavy again. You know, you don't want to drop him like three or four feet. And it was perfectly simple. All, all, what we had to say to ourselves, well, we said it out loud, was he looks white. He is white. He looks light. He is light. And about the third or fourth time we we would say that, then the person would fall up off the table. All right, if you um, would, if you would, caller, uh, just hold it right there for me. We got to take a break, but please stay right where you are, because um, I, I I imagine that's not the end of it. Uh, phone lines are open. My guest tonight is Stephen Browdy. We're talking about real examples of psychokinesis, and look, we welcome you to join the conversation tonight. And uh, I'm Heather Wade, and we'll be right back. Oh, well, I asked you to call up and give us examples of PK that you've seen or experienced, and here we are. We've got it. I've got Caller on the line, and he has stayed with us over the break, and uh, Stephen Browdy is my guest tonight, and this is a subject I've been interested in for well over 20 years. Also, I have tried and tried and tried to see if I could do it with, well, limited success. (laughs) Hey, it doesn't make it any less fun, right? Uh, so let's uh, welcome Stephen back to the program. Uh, holding up over there pretty well, I'd say, Stephen. I'm still there. Thank you. <laughs> let's bring our caller back. Uh, and you, sir, are back on the air. And uh, you were giving us a story about how you used to experiment with this in school. Um, Oh, that's, um, I gave you that example as an example, like Stephen was pointing out earlier. Um, I'll tie this together in a minute of, um, maybe having to have a, a protocol to accomplish something. Um, so I'm not sure, uh, how much, um, individual little steps were involved in those things or not. Um, the other one that I would give, um, as an example, I worked in a machine shop one time, um, and I was coming in from the, the parking lot through the roll-up doors, and somebody had put a um, a crate on a pallet 
um, right smack in front of the, the personnel door. You know, these big rolling doors sometimes have a one-person door, you know, you can go in. And so I walked through the door, and it, and it was right between me and my workstation. And I, and I remember thinking, well, what a stupid place to put a crate, you know. So I just pushed it over against the wall and went over to my workstation. And a few minutes later, while I'm standing there doing, getting ready to run a machine, a, a forklift comes around the corner inside, and this guy drives over and picks up this crate, and I could hear the hydraulics whining on the forklift. And I thought, well, dang, that thing wasn't that heavy. What's the story here? So I followed him over to the other side of the shop, and he set it down and then drove away. And I went up and had a, uh, sh- uh, a shipping receipt on it, you know, a packing slip. Sure. And, yeah, well, this box <laughs> weighed over 800 pounds. <laughs> um, and when I moved it, it didn't feel like it weighed anything. I mean, it just slid across the floor like it was like cardboard. So, um now this, I think that's a case of where, um, what a person um, wants is not. It just happens. Um, obviously, I couldn't move that crate like that. My, you know, under normal circumstances, um, things like this happen all the time. But um, like Stephen was saying, because most of them are are small, uh, and they don't really, they don't really grab your, my attention. Um, and I've been making notes, you know, trying to remember all these weird things, but, um, I think Steven was exactly right when he said that it's just a matter of, of, of what we want to happen. Okay. And what we want to happen is generally defined, by what has been conditioned into us by our society. You know, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, you know, what's, uh, what'll, uh, you don't want to do anything that'll make other people look at you weird and you won't be accepted. Because one of our fundamental needs as human beings is to be accepted by the people around us. And if we do something that makes them look at us askance or weird, um, it's a little disturbing. I know I've had, uh, instances where I've lost, you know, not really close friends, because really close friends won't do that to you, but, you know, you'll have a whole group of people just all of a sudden look at you like you just dropped your last marble. Uh, Um, Story of my life, sir. Yes, I have never fit in. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so um, we, uh, um, I've been digging around at this since I was a little kid because I grew up in the middle of a a lot of strange stuff. Um, I don't think it would be beneficial, uh, by any means for, um, all of a sudden, if you could push a button and have everybody in America, just, you don't even need the whole world. Just say everybody in America, all of a sudden solidly believe in PK and all of the so-called paranormal, and I really don't like that word because it happens so often, it's normal. But um, if if you could get everybody to all of a sudden really believe in that stuff, I think most people would just uh, go off the deep end. Um, Because there are, um, like Stephen points out, you know, people will start, well, wow, you know, if you can do that, you you know, stop somebody's heart, break somebody's leg, do things like that. Um, 
I'm well. No, I don't think I'm, it's the belief so much as the ability. Believing well, it, well, there's plenty of people that believe uh, throughout the population. But if we all suddenly had the ability, then that would create an, a different world entirely. Well, okay, I that may be true in my in my experience um, in in playing around with a lot of stuff like this. Uh, I will, you know, start into something new, something I haven't done before, and believing that I can do it, but it doesn't work right off the bat. And what I find is, is that there's always a little piece of me somewhere back in there that's going, no, you can't do that. It's like wired into us somehow. The doubt. Yeah, there's always this little doubt thing. And once doubt is removed, then, then you can. Um, well, did you um, did you have a, a question for Stephen? A direct question for him? Um, yeah, I was. Um, well, not a question so much as to just say thank you for um, getting on the show and and making a whole lot of sense. Um, <laughs> well, thanks. I actually have some you things know. to say to this. <laughs> All right, well, uh, go right ahead, Stephen. I mean, very interesting comments. I mean, first of all, I know about the the deal with lifting people with the finger. I've done that myself. And I get asked that fairly often, actually. Whether that's PK or not, I'm not sure. But combine that with the other example of moving the 800-pound uh, uh, crate, and I think the, the caller's point is very good, that um, when we're not constrained by any of our ordinary, everyday doubts about what is or is not possible, who knows what's, <laughs> what, what can happen. And, you know, this reminds me of the people who, when they're under great times, times of great stress, can exhibit feats of strength they wouldn't normally be able to do, like lifting a car off somebody who's been crushed under a car. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether those count as PK, you know, that I don't know. But I think all of this somehow fits together. And I'll just add one other thing. You know, it may be that this has to do with whether uh, we need to believe in PK or not. Um, It may be, for all we know, that PK is occurring all the time surreptitiously. Uh, The only difference between a a car crash caused by PK and one caused normally would be unobservable. It would be in their unobservable causal histories. And so... You know, if your coworker is having migraine headaches or is losing his or her keys, or if you wonder where your socks have gone, or if you want to know why you can always find parking spaces, I mean, it may be that these are all manifestations of unconscious psychic functioning, but they're, they don't necessarily command our attention as such because they just fit in more or less smoothly with everyday events. You know, some things don't fit in so smoothly, so tables don't ordinarily levitate. But traffic light anomalies or other sorts of things like car crashes do happen all the time. And what our involvement in them may be is something that we may never really know for sure. Mm, I think our involvement in those normal everyday occurrences uh, is more than we think, more than we're prepared to accept. Um, 
you know, when he, thank you, sir, very much for the call, uh, very good call. Uh, when he brought up, uh, well, if you do these things or if you do anything that's sort of outside what's accepted, you know, people are going to give you the hairy eyeball and then you won't be accepted. It reminded me of something because I've been trying to think all night, uh, you know, have I ever done this? Have I ever seen something like this directly? Two instances I can remember. Um, <laughs> and I have no answers for how these things happened or, or what caused it. I, I'm not ready to believe that it was me. Uh, one time I was visiting a friend and she, we had always talked about, she lived in an old house and she was always kind of saying, I hear weird things at night and this house might be haunted and such. And uh, she was doing the dishes and I was just sort of standing there putting them after she washed them onto the counter, helping her. And, um, all of a sudden, as she's talking about how her house just might be haunted, there was one of these uh, uh, depression glass um, candy dishes that was up on one of the shelves. And uh, there were no doors on the shelves there. And all of a sudden, the lid from this candy dish um, shoots up, hits the bottom of the shelf above it and flies into the middle of the kitchen floor and lands on the floor. It doesn't break. And we both stopped it was pretty violent because that kind of glass is really heavy and we just went okay and she looked at me and said what did you do that for and i said i didn't do that <laughs> said, well yes you did what are you trying to break this and she picks it up and puts it back and i said well i don't know why you automatically think that it's me then another time Oh, this is many, many years later. Oh, gosh, I was about I know, 29. I worked at a cell phone store. And uh, in in the cell phone store, um, you know, they have those uh, racks on the wall, right, with all the different accessories hanging off the wall. And it was a calm, slow afternoon. There was nobody in the store and just, uh, I don't know, three or four of us working. And I was new. So I want to make a good impression, right? And uh, nobody's up at the registers, and I decided I'm going to stand at attention at the register, waiting for anybody to come in, and I'm going to help them. So I'm standing there, and I'm sort of looking around at the empty store, and here comes a coworker who had worked there for years. And he walks in, and he says, well, how are you doing so far? And all of a sudden, on the wall to my right whole bunch of these accessories just started flying off the wall onto the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at him and he looks at me, he looks at the floor, and he looks at me again, and he just went right back into the break room, shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I've both instances, I don't know if this is haunting activity, I don't know if it's the other person, I don't know if it's an environmental anomaly. Right. Um, but, uh, they're both, both of them very, very strange. Never been able to explain that. Uh, do you, would you chalk that up to the poltergeist thing? Could be. I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a chronic thing like, uh, your classic cases of poltergeist. Yeah. Cause I don't have that sort of thing going on around me all the time. Um, you know, it, it, here Counts I am. Blessings. Yeah, right. I do, too. I absolutely do. Um, no, in, in this house, there's objects don't move around. I heard a <clears throat> I heard a disembodied voice one time. Um, I don't consider that uh, enough evidence to say this place is haunted. 
Uh, but thankfully, dishes aren't flying off the shelves and uh, paintings. Well, actually, <clears throat> that's not true. I have had a couple of pictures fall down, uh, but I don't consider that paranormal. I consider that a failure to properly hang a picture. Uh, <laughs> but um, you may never know for sure. Right. Yeah, right. But what I'm getting at by telling you all this is, do you think it's possible that we all could display this ability on accident with no rhyme or reason? Yes, that's my hunch about the way things happen. But And we may never be able to know for sure in any given case what's going on. But that's why I think the real pioneers of paranormal research at this stage in our understanding, which I think is still very preliminary, will be people who are like Darwinian naturalists, people who have a nose or an eye or whatever the correct orifice is uh, for these kinds of phenomena. Somebody who's really sensitive to patterns and can weave together uh, intelligible stories about why things, strange things happen. And I think one of the best people to have ever done this is the late psychoanalyst Jewel Eisenbud who wrote a number of extremely interesting books. Um, probably the most accessible would be his anthology, Parapsychology and the Unconscious. And he was really, really good at doing this kind of thing. He could dig beneath the surface to see what was going on in people's heads that might explain various kinds of weird things happening in their life. Because he, he really tried to answer the question, whose needs would be served by the appearance of these phenomena? And until we get to that level, I don't think we really have any understanding of what the natural history of psychic functioning is. Mm. You know, that is interesting. And I also wonder, uh, because just about every function of the human body has some sort of... Um, survival element behind it right we have a uh, we have our flight or fight response uh, to mm-hmm. danger perceived danger i just wonder is there any uh survival need for pk um you know why would that be there why would evolution put that there or develop it within us if is there any actual uh purpose that it's serving as far as our survival goes it's a good question. It's one to which I don't have a good answer, but you reminded me that Eisenbud actually mentioned in one of his papers that uh, um, when you think about how Psy might be working throughout the animal kingdom, more in this case ESP, he pointed out how certain kinds of animals, and I, I'm going to just keep this very vague because I don't remember all the details, how animals sometimes seem to use their ESP to um, sacrifice themselves for the good of the community in which they're a part. Mm-hmm. How some, well, yeah, I want to leave it at that, but have, have your listeners check out Eisenbud's book, uh, Parapsychology and the Unconscious. And I'm going to have to go back to it to refresh my memory of that example, but you just reminded me of that. Well, that is cool that you brought that up because, look, animals, they seem to be a step ahead of us almost all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember... I remember having uh, this feral cat. Uh, she was so feral. I mean, we we named her crazy. That's how feral she was. And I remember one time uh, walking out of my job. That part of it's irrelevant. I walked out of my job. And I remember uh, walking home because I lived very close by. And as the closer I got to my house, the more upset with myself 
I became. <laughs> you know, what have you done? Oh my God, this is the stupidest thing you could have possibly done. Why did it have to work out that way? On and on and on, right? And I'm just working myself up into a frenzy. By the time I get home, put my key in the lock and open the door, I'm just fit to be tied, right? I'm all kinds of messed up. And uh, I didn't make a sound. I wasn't, uh, you couldn't tell just by looking at me that I was upset. I opened the door. There's my feral cat comes running down the stairs. And all I did was look at her and she backs up. All the hair on her body stands up and she starts hissing at me, which she <laughs> never really did. And it was like she knew. She knew something was very, very wrong. I had never seen that reaction from her ever. And it was pronounced and violent. I mean, she knew something was up. Um, and then there's all these stories about uh, the animals having a, a reaction before an earthquake, um, animals having reaction to people um, in any number of situations. So it would seem that they've got some kind of leg up on us. And I don't know if that's a, a precognitive ability. I don't know if this is PK. You know, I, I'm not quite sure what it is, but they've got some sort of ability to sense what's going on uh, before we do. And well, this is why intelligence is sometimes as much a liability as a virtue. It just gives us more complicated ways of getting in our own way. <laughs> We're screwing up. <laughs> it increases uh, our repertoire of possible errors. Yeah, well, that certainly does. It certainly does. But if that ability exists within animals then it would it would almost stand to reason that there's some sort of uh, survival benefit to it. You know, maybe over the years it's been, we've trained it out of ourselves um, one way or another. Um, but here it shows up here and yeah, there. You know, it makes its appearance here or there. So it, it hasn't been completely trained out of us. And it just makes me wonder. Uh, and again, I don't expect you to have the end all be all answer to this. I just find it interesting to talk That's about. A relief. <laughs> but uh, it would be unprecedented if we in the animal kingdom, if we didn't have at least in a primitive respect, some of the same capacities, whether they're um, asleep or not most of the time. We're right. continuous with the rest of the animal kingdom. Of course we have. Mm -hmm. Right. So that there must be some sort of uh, survival um, function to that, whether it might be just as simple as avoiding danger. You know, this is a way for us to avoid danger, uh, being able to move objects. Maybe this is a maybe it just comes down to saving well, somebody more else. Primal moments. Yeah. In our more primal moments, we're likely to uh avail ourselves of those capacities. Mm -hmm. And maybe just like how the flight or fight uh, response, I think I'm getting that backwards. I think it's fight or flight. I'm a little bit dyslexic, sir. Pardon me. Um, just like how that is only supposed to be used on a rare occasion, right? You're supposed to respond to the danger, get away from the danger, and then that response fades away. Maybe it's the same with PK. Maybe that's just something that's supposed to pop up every now and then. And then it goes away until it's absolutely needed at another time. Mm. Or maybe we assault someone in anticipation of an, a, a, a coming attack. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, who knows is Again, right. Think about the evil eye. Think about hexing. Think about the ways in, in other cultures in which 
these kinds of abilities are enlisted to uh, to help get through the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they do. They do. I mean, there are cultures that will probably never let go uh, of these beliefs, and um, nor should they. Right. That's what I was just. You read my mind. That's what I was just going to say. And nor should they. Uh, we may have time for for one more call here. Let's see. Uh, as long as the question is quick. On line one, you're on the air with Stephen Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hi, you guys. I've been listening to your show all night long, and it, it seems to me, Stephen and uh, Heather, that uh, when the universe was created 14 and a half billion years ago, the, um, the aspect of this paranormal phenomena or PK or any of these uh, unexplained phenomena is embedded in the fabric of the universe, and as living creatures... Part of uh, our development and our evolution revolves around utilizing this uh, phenomena. And I believe, I personally believe that when God created the universe, the remnants in creating the universe, part of God is embedded in the universe. And this is the aspect of uh, like PK or any of the other phenomena that are at this point unexplained is going to be found that I believe that this is what is left from what God has created. Does, does that make any sense? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it does to me, uh, and I and I very much appreciate the call. Kind of wish we had more time, uh, Stephen. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it connects with what we were saying earlier about whether these are these phenomena are part of nature rather than something that's supernatural or non-natural. So mm-hmm. that's just another way I think of expressing the same thing. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I got to thank you, Stephen, for just about the most interesting discussion on PK. I think that uh, that I've had. Um, you know this does come up now and then. I've done entire open lines shows on the power of the mind, uh, but it's rare to get this in-depth into it. So I got I to gotta thank you and hope thank we can you. do this again sometime. I hope so, too. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you've got some website, jazzphilosopher.com. That's your website. You've also, That's the easiest one to remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the other ones going, well, wait a minute. Um, you've also got a YouTube channel out there. Jazz Philosopher One. And uh, just to remind folks, you've got uh, Crimes of Reason on Mind, Nature, and the Paranormal. That book is your latest. And then uh, the Gold Leaf Lady, where did this go? <laughs> Let's see here, where did it go? The Gold you Leaf Lady. My books? <laughs> yes, and other parapsychological investigations. That's what I was looking for. Uh, and, and you've got many more books than that also. Uh, but this is what we've been talking about all night. And uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, I appreciate your having me on. I had a great time. All right. Well, thank you much. Uh, Stephen Browdy, everybody. And I do encourage you to, to look up his books. I'm going to have to go get a couple myself. And that's our show, everyone. Uh, try to use the power of your mind. And if it works, get back to me. <laughs> Good night.
in the desert And there's wisdom in the air I've been looking for the answers All my life I found you there As the world we live in quickens Are we heeding all the signs? Have we lost our intuition? Are we running out of time? 